When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm gonna call it now. Choice of music there, Ben Francis, Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant, I think it was yesterday, turning 74 years of age. Just such wonderful musicians. The musicianship, when these guys were doing Led Zeppelin 1, Led Zeppelin 2, 21, 22 years of age, just layer on layer. I, I, I say this, I mean, I've listened to a lot of rock bands, but the musicianship with these guys, just extraordinary. Extraordinary. It'd be pretty impressive if it actually was Led Zeppelin. What was it? You, you, you should know who it is. That sounded Led Zeppelin. It was not Led Zeppelin. This is your Scottish boy. It is. So you've just thrown me under the bus. How good. How good, though. <laughs> what a great way to start the show. That is brilliant. That is really good. But it also just shows the influence of Led Zeppelin, because you cannot tell me that man is not influenced by Led Zeppelin. You can't just suddenly go on the keyboard and stop talking to me. Oh, I've just got such a smug look on my face. That's, I know. That, that's, uh, that's I've, I've be... got a four-letter word, but I can't say that on air to describe <laughs> you, Ben. I quite liked you up until about two minutes ago. Oh, Until you completely on. and utterly embarrassed me. <laughs> Great way to start the show. Yeah. Anyway, we maybe could do a little bit of Led Zeppelin later on. How are you? Right, now, um, well, answer that question. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Very good. I'm very excited. Uh this has been a big week coming up for me. It's been three years uh, in the waiting for the New Zealand Darts Masters to finally be back, so I'm super pumped. And, of course, people listening in now will be accustomed to the at the Oki being on Monday nights between 9 and 10, but it's not on tonight. Instead, we have a two-hour special tomorrow night. So I'm very, very, very excited about that. I cannot emphasise that enough. Yeah, now, who have you got coming in tomorrow? Because, I mean, these darts players are big brand athletes now they're not just known within that niche or that niche sport well, a sport that was once a niche sport they are actually brands that lot sports fans now know yeah so we'll have myself of course uh, i'm a very prominent dart player that's a bit of a joke uh, 
<laughs> uh, we got uh, Ben Robb coming in, New Zealand's number one ranked player. But in terms of the big names, we're going to have we're going to be hearing from uh, Michael Van Gerwen, Gerwen Price, brilliant, Johnny Clayton, Dimitri Vandenberg, James Wade, Michael Smith, Joe Cullen, and Fallon Sherrick are all going to be making appearances tomorrow. Yeah, I once had the privilege of interviewing Van Barnfeld out of the Netherlands, um, and I've got to say, thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Fascinating to find out how you grow up in the Netherlands and become arguably one of the best darts players in the world because I think when you think of the Netherlands you don't really sort of think of darts yet how prominent have they become in the sport oh it's massive over there you know Michael Van Gerwen has dominated the darting scene for the last 10 years and that's a big credit to Raymond Van Barneveld they've got lots of great great players coming through and it's actually one of the most watched sports over in that part of the world as well mm. I think uh, in Netherlands and Germany I think it's actually number two behind uh, football yeah and I tell you the other one is Q Sports and I've, I think I've told you this you've got Marco Teuscher living here in New Zealand number 23 in the world uh, out of the Netherlands outstanding when it comes to eight ball nine ball ten ball um, based down in Hamilton with the Marseille club so uh, the Netherlands, yeah, certainly take some of these so-called niche sports and they've actually become national sports in their country. Look, telephone number tonight is 0800 150 That's 0800 150 You can text us here on 8833. We will open the lines. Interesting night. I thought we'd just change it up a little bit. We've been wanting to do this interview for some time. Craig Kirkwood is going to join us on the programme shortly. Now, Craig Kirkwood was an outstanding runner in his own right, selected to represent New Zealand in the marathon at the Commonwealth Games back in 2002 in Manchester. But he now coaches triathlete Hayden Wild, and he now coaches 1,500-metre specialist Sam Tanner. Sam Tanner, just 21 years of age, at the Commonwealth Games finished sixth, ran 331.34, faster than Sir John Walker, faster than Sir Peter Snell. What a future. Yes, you've got to have good talent, no matter who the coach is. But to be able to take the guesswork out and be able to get these athletes peaking and achieving at the highest level requires a huge understanding, wonderful communication skills. And Craig Kirkwood has all of that. He's on the program next. We will talk motorsport. After 8 o'clock with David Turner, we will focus a little bit on the supercars with Shane Van Gisbergen, but do want to talk about Scotty McLaughlin in the latest round of the Indy cars. David Turner has produced a lot of major international motorsport over the years, very close to the Indy car scene, very close to Scotty McLaughlin. I think there are five drivers with two races left still in contention for winning the championship. After nine o'clock, Guy McRae out of the UK will talk some English Premier League football. What a weekend of sport. Leeds United beating Chelsea 3-0. Newcastle, Man City playing out a three-all draw. My mob, Liverpool, take on the filth that is Manchester United tomorrow morning. Seven o'clock New Zealand time. United, have they hit rock bottom? Liverpool. Two games into the season, two draws. A must-win game for Liverpool. And every game at the moment is a must-win game for Manchester United.
We'll talk all things English Premier League after nine. Again, that telephone number 0800 150 You can text the programme here on 8833. After 10 o'clock, now this is an interview I did do previously here a couple of weeks ago on a Friday afternoon. And I want to replay it for you because I had a lot of people um, on social media talking about it. And that is with a centurion. His name is Arch Jelly. He's just turned 100 years of age. The interview I did was actually the day before his 100th birthday. Arch Jelly coached the great Sir John Walker throughout his entire athletics career. Won gold, of course, in 1976, Sir John, and became the first man in history to break three minutes 50 for the mile. Did that in Gothenburg in 1975. To bring some context to what Arch Jelly has done in 100 years, you'll hear him talk about Jack Lovelock. Remember, Jack Lovelock won gold in the 1500 metres in 1936. He remembers Jack Lovelock coming into a school and talking to him. So we'll do that for you after 10 o'clock tonight. It is eight minutes after seven. We've already had some texts come in. I will address those texts shortly. One more time, 0800 150 text number 8833. Talkback is a better experience if you jump on the phone and have your say. Love to hear from you. So when we do open the lines, don't be a stranger. We'll take a break. And there we go, a little bit of Led Zeppelin, 13 minutes after seven. I'm often asked what I felt was the best performance of the Commonwealth Games. And look, it's very hard to go past Aaron Gate in that men's road race. But I have said, I think the sixth place from Sam Tanner in the 1500 metres was right up there. Yes, he didn't win a medal, but let's be honest, some events I think are a lot more difficult than others. And I think some events certainly carry more weight. What made this performance from young Sam Tanner so remarkable is that in that final, and it is a final, so you're also peaking in the final, you're running a personal best in the final, which is not easy to do at these big meets, he ran 331.34, becoming the second fastest New Zealander in history over 1,500 metres behind Nick Willis, but more importantly ahead of Sir Peter Snell and Sir John Walker. His coach joins us on the programme. He also happens to coach our best triathlete in Hayden Wild. Craig Kirkwood, good evening, welcome. Good evening, thanks very much for having me, Mark. Yeah, no worries. Uh, look, um, what a remarkable stable of athletes you have at the moment, Craig. H- how did you establish the relationship with both Sam and Hayden? Did they come to you? Did you cherry-pick them? Uh, how far back <laughs> does those relationships go? No, um, they go back quite a while, but no, I did not cherry-pick them. I've, I've never asked uh, one athlete to, to coach them in my whole life, so um, it's always a case of them coming to me. Uh, I always find that the relationship gets off on a better foot when an athlete kind of can handpick their coach and um, work with someone that they want to, so that's kind of my philosophy on that. Um, they, they both came to me oh, maybe four or five years ago or so. Hayden was the end of 2016. Sam was probably around a similar time. He was the second to last year at school. So I don't know how many years that it goes now, maybe three or four. So, mm. And was yeah. it early on, did you realise the immense talent both these young men had? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember watching um, Sam win the year nine schools cross country in, in, um, in Palmerston North. And I 
kind of saw him running around that day, and I was like, man, this kid has some has some talent. You know, he's, he can go a long way if he's got all the other attributes. And I didn't know didn't anything about him at that point, and or I had never met him. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later where he he kind of showed up again, and um, he approached me to coach him. And yeah, I knew from that point on it was going to be some amazing things happening. So he's a talented young man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, youngest ever, I understand too. Youngest ever New Zealander uh, to achieve the sub four minute mile. Yeah, that's correct. Yep, he um, he ran that in Wanganui on the, on the on the famous track at Cook's Gardens. There, it was um, yeah another epic race down on that on that track. It's such a um, you know such a venue filled with so much tradition and history, um, and it was you know really cool for him to do it there. Is it scary having such talent knocking on your door saying, "Hey, here's the youngest ever sub four minute miler." And now I've got to take him to that next level. Now it's my job, my responsibility to take out the guesswork and help fulfil his true potential, which, again, at 21, we still is not even close to. Yeah, well, you make it scary when you put it like that. Um, but to be honest, it's, it was kind of a natural progression. So when, when I first started working with Sam, he he was a bit of an outsider for national cross-country um, and we got him fit and knew he was running well and um, he was completely under the radar uh, winning his first school's cross-country champs. And then ever, ever since then, it's just been a natural progression year on year, um, just kind of chipping off his you know, time um, over the 1,500 metres and other, and other track times, but that's his main event. Um, and now he's down to 3.31 and it's the same again. We're just kind of looking at the next target now and going, well, you know, how much faster can you go? What's, what's the next goal that we can um, achieve? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the natural, the natural one there is Nick Willis's um, New Zealand record. You know, it's a big audacious goal, um, but I certainly think that he's capable of um, getting it. Now, what is that? That's what three twenty-eight six six or something. Isn't it faster than Steve Cram by one one hundredth of a second? I think, and that was Cram's world record. Um, oh, you're putting me on the spot. I think it's three twenty-nine. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to search it up while I'm talking. Might to be three twenty-nine. Um, yeah, I know that it was about a one hundredth of a second faster than Steve Cram. Yeah. About about two seconds faster than um, what Sam's got now, so um, I think you know he can he could definitely get there um, sometime in the future. I don't know how long that's going to take, but um, you know I certainly mm. think he can get there. Three twenty nine point six six is what the points are. It, 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 coachability. I mean, I often talk about coachability as being a, a part of talent. Is he is he easy to coach? Does he listen? Yeah, very easy to coach. Um, he listens. Um, you know he's. He's got great faith in um, the work that we do together. And, um, yeah, he, he just gets about his business. And, you know, um, yeah, very, very easy to coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does like to go surfing and skateboarding occasionally, but that's all right. You know, he's got to have other interests in life. So. Oh, yeah, no, I always say that because if it's all you do and you're having bad days, well, then life sucks. But if you're having bad days but you're still doing the work, you've got something else to put your energy to, you can sort of switch off and wake up the next day and hopefully things are better. Um, in terms of understanding that relationship between yourself and Sam, are you there? Do you sort of got a pretty good handle on the type of work that suits him best? Yeah, I mean, we've worked together for so long now that, um, I, yeah, I do have a really good understanding of how he operates. Um He's uh, he's a thoroughbred. He's got a massive VO2. He's really really fast. I don't know if you saw him doing some speed work um, out of the blocks with Eddie um, Nikita um, at the pre-camp before Worlds. But he um, he was holding he was holding Eddie for the first kind of 30 or 40 meters of those sprints. So it was it was pretty impressive to watch. But he's also got an en- a big engine on him that can 
you know, run a really good five or ten k if he needed to. So yeah, he's now, got all the all the physical attributes that he needs, um, and he's you know an intelligent um, young man. He's a he's a smart learner. And um, he's, you know, he's, he's a good racist, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I think sometimes when you get athletes that are so talented and so passionate, the hardest thing is actually holding them back, making sure they don't overtrain, making sure they don't do more than you give them. Do you have any issues in that area? No, because I think he, I think he, um, you know, trusts me enough to um, just, you know, do as I do as I say. Really, um, we do have we do have discussions where sometimes, you know, we'll change things up a little bit if he's feeling. You know, obviously a bit rubbish in a workout, or um, if he's if he's feeling really good, we might change things up and make it a little bit harder than we might have done normally. So, but um, yeah, it's just a trust thing, really, just him trusting that I, I'm I've got his best interest at heart when we when we lay out sessions and a you know a plan, um, and it's going to get him to where we want to get him. Yeah, and I don't think any coach gives any athlete anything because they want them to fail. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you, it doesn't mean you, it doesn't necessarily mean you always get it right either as a coach. Uh, look, he, he did head off no, to the, he did head off to the states to go on an athletic scholarship over there, but that clearly didn't work for him. Why didn't that work for him? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the US um, college system is right for everyone, um, and I think every college, obviously, every college is really different over there, and. Um, I think young athletes need to do uh, a ton of research when they're looking at going to those colleges and making sure that they, they pick the right environment for them, they pick the right coach that's there. Uh, and you can never guarantee that coach is going to stay too because uh, like everyone else, they're trying to climb the ladder. So they'll be looking for the next big job um, and looking to move on if they, if they get an offer. So um, you're never guaranteed that the coach is going to stay. Um, Sam is... Sam is um, Someone who is a bit of a homebody. He's got a big family, really close. Um, and I've always said that he, you know, a happy Sam is a fast Sam. So he wasn't always that happy being away from home and being away from his uh, fiance at the time. And, um, and so to come home and just kind of be based mm. here uh, with his family was kind of the, the missing ingredient, really, from, from you know being in the states. Yeah, is that going to affect him in the long term? Because let's be honest, he's going to have to get overseas in New Zealand winters. He's going to have to go and race. He's going to need to race a lot. I mean, that seems to um, still seems to be the pathway in terms of taking that next step. Is, is that something that he's going to be comfortable doing? Yeah, yeah, he's definitely comfortable doing that. He's done that quite a bit this year. He's had uh, three campaigns offshore now um, for the year. So, um yeah, no, more than comfortable. He's a he's a fully professional athlete. He's um, sponsored by Puma, and um, you know they have him on a you know retainer salary. So he's you know he's looked after financially. He's paid to run. Um, so it's his job to go offshore and race. And um, you know he and his family know that. But at least he's not kind of based overseas full time, which is what he wasn't really keen on doing. So being here and having that contract has been you know hugely um, beneficial to him. It is 22 minutes after seven. You're listening to SENZ. My guest on the program is New Zealand's leading middle distance coach and arguably New Zealand's leading triathlon coach, Craig Kirkwood. Uh, just sticking with Sam before we move on and uh, talk about Hayden Wild, tactically at the Commonwealth Games, I sort of sense Sam maybe still didn't quite believe. Were you happy with the way he ran tactically? Because he finished very fast, but he, he found himself sort of a long way back with two to 300 metres. Yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting race because we weren't, 100% sure how that race was going to unfold. Um, I had a pretty strong suspicion that it was going to go quick, but I, I didn't anticipate 3.30 quick. We kind of talked around kind of 3.32, 3.33, which is there's a reasonable difference in the way those races um, kind of unfold. Um, so, 
yeah, we kind of talked about him settling in, um, you know, mid-pack if it, if it goes out at a, a fast tempo, but not crazy. Um, but that first lap, even the first 200 metres, was insanely fast. So they went through 225 seconds and then through in 54. Um, so for him to be positioned at the back was actually quite good because he, he probably came through the 455 high or even 56 seconds. Um, it just meant that he wasn't working quite as hard as the, the guys at the front, and but still in contact. Um, and with, at the bell, with about 400 to go, he got um, caught behind... Um, Josh Kerr from um, Scotland and as Kerr was kind of going backwards, so Sam had to kind of get round him, um, which probably was his only mistake of the race. Um, and yeah, just found himself a little gapped coming into the last 200 metres. But yeah, he was, and he was the only one moving forward in the last 100. Um, even Ollie Hall was kind of only maintaining pace and the others were fading. Um, and Sam was the only one moving forward. So a uh, really good sign, you know, to be able to run hard at the end off a, off a really fast paced race like that. Let's talk about Hayden Wild. Now, you come from a very good running background yourself. Running is your thing. Um, how difficult has it become? How difficult has it been becoming a world-class triathlon coach? Um, yeah, it's had its challenges because um, I think people do just see me as a run, running coach a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'd never call myself a, a swim coach, but I, I do understand endurance sport and I, and I do understand high-performance sport. So, um, the transition to you know coaching triathlon at that level hasn't been hugely difficult, but it certainly had its challenges. Mm, yeah, in terms of oh, let's be honest, I mean you can you can't win the race in the swim, but you can lose it. But ultimately and primarily now, it is a running race. In terms of having him run at an optimal level, but also having to factor in that he does need to swim train, he does need to bike train. Um, what is how does that adjustment look? Like if if yeah, so, versus say just purely coaching them as a runner. Yeah, so the, it's just a balance of that load over the week, um, making sure that when we're doing you know workouts on the bike that they're not um, impacting on a run workout we might have two days later, or um, and so just and just balancing all that um, against each other to make sure that we're getting the right gains at the right time. You know, we spent the first probably four years of his career getting him to the front of the race, and we spent the last probably 18 months um, trying to win races now. So it's been a bit of a shift um, in how we look at his performances and how we kind of work on his tapering to events. Um, but, you know, it's just a, just another challenge that you face when you're trying to um, coach an athlete at that level. Yeah, uh, coach, swim coach is Liz Van Whaley, former Olympian, former Commonwealth Games um, medalist. Uh, what's the yeah. relationship, what sort of relationship do you have with her? Yeah, it's good. I mean, we have... Uh, you know, solid communication and there's, um, you know, um, good, a good plan in place around getting his swim workouts, um, you know, at, at the right level so they fit in with um, his, his other training so we're not kind of doubling up on days when we shouldn't be. So, yeah. mm, 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 mm. Now, um, Hayden is an athlete who does like to race a lot. Uh, he's clearly also a professional, so he does need to try and earn a living. So he's had Commonwealth Games. He's just been involved in the Collins Cup, which tends to be a little bit more Ironman, half Ironman-focused, endurance side of it. Uh, we've got the Super League. In terms of planning his year, periodizing, he races a lot on the track over summer. Um, again, talk us through that. How do you set that up? Yeah, that's probably the most challenging thing, um, to make sure we get those, you know, the, the key events, um, of the year um, in focus and that we're, we're absolutely getting them 100% right for those. Um, and so for this year, it's been, Com, Com Games was definitely the, the number one goal. 
the others were almost means to an end. Uh, um, a for him to survive as a professional athlete, and also um, as we use a lot of it as, as a training um, to stepping stone to to work on things that we need to work on. So um, the next the next major uh, for him will be Super League, and then the Grand Final, which is in Abu Dhabi at the end of the year. So. Um, kind of the three main uh, peaks of the year or, you know, events that we'll be focusing on anyway. Yeah, look, well document, a lot of publicity around Hayden at the Commonwealth Games and picking up that 10-second penalty. But look, I think it's probably fair and respectful to say that there was no guarantee that would that would have meant gold. I mean, Alex Year is one hell of a runner, particularly over five, particularly over 5K. Yeah, no, he's absolute, absolute class act. He's no design. Um, we just lost you there, Craig. Sorry. Yeah, still here. Yeah, yeah, just breaking yeah. up a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, right. Yeah, no, uh, we were we were pretty confident that he was going to be in the race and would be able to contend. And you know that penalty, it was just you know horribly timed in terms of um, you know putting Hayden on the back foot um, mentally and you know go went into our last lap of the run knowing that he wasn't going to win. So um, you know pretty awful position to be in, especially if we didn't know what it was for. Yeah, yeah. Look, he's got Paris in uh, what about two and a half years. Uh, look, he's potentially could be an Olympic Games gold medalist. Um, he's still very young. He's still in his development. What is the plan to take that, continue to develop him, uh, continue to develop his running, continue to develop his swimming? Is it just a case of doing what you've been doing, but it's just layer upon layer? Or is there going to be um, a revolution in the way you're doing things, or is it just a subtle evolution? No, just a subtle evolution, I think. Um, you know, you never quite know with triathlon who the next superstar is going to be, who's going to come and make an impact on the race. So, um, you know, we could have someone in the next two years, you know, arrive on the scene that completely changes the way that these races uh, um, unfold. And, you know, we've, we've got to keep across all the young talent coming up and knowing kind of what how they could impact on it and what we can do to at least, you know, stay in the game and be still be influential and um, for him to be there at the sharp end of the race and try and win it. Um, so, you know, a lot of that is, dictated swim bike um hayden's run is definitely good enough and you know getting good enough to be able to win these races we just need to at the moment we're just trying to find ways to beat alex yee so um yeah so mm-hmm. that's that, that's the challenge we face at the moment and the development is you know just kind of watching all those young fellows who are coming through mm-hmm. um yeah uh, craig i was, I was um everyone needs a coach. Do, do you have a coach? Do you have somebody that you go to to ask some questions if you're not quite sure? Or is that just you, your athletes have a pretty good understanding so between the both of you, you can sort of figure it all out? Um, I have a few people that I um, talk to every now and again um, if I'm stuck with something. Um, yeah, but the athletes I work with, you know, we have a pretty good relationship and we can yarn about things that we're not sure on. And um, if we need to, we can step outside and look for help elsewhere. Um you know, we're planning an altitude camp um, for early early part, part of next year, and I was just consulting this afternoon with uh, one of the high performance um, sports guys about the you know protocols and what we can do pre and post, and make sure that we're doing it correctly, and making sure we're measuring exactly what we're doing is working, and not just a waste of time and money. So, um, yeah, so definitely use consultants and people we we need to talk to um, when we need to. Yeah. Well, Craig Kirkwood, lovely to have you on the programme. Congratulations on all your coaching success and certainly looking forward to following the future of both Sam Tanner and Hayden Wild, mate. You are a class act and doing a wonderful job. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me.
There you go, Craig Kirkwood, one of our great triathlon coaches, one of our great middle distance coaches in this country with two remarkable athletes that he has developed. They didn't just go to him. Yes, they've had talent, but he's identified it. He's worked with them. And boy, what a stable he has. And following in the tradition of the great Arch Jelly, the likes of Arthur Lydiard and some of the wonderful running coaches and endurance coaches that we have had over the years. Uh, if Look, if you, you want to have your say on that interview, uh, if there's anything there that just sort of tweaked your interest that you wish to comment on, 0800 is the number. You can text us here on 8833. 331.34 for Sam Tanner, 21 years of age. Could become our greatest ever 1,500-metre runner. To do that, he will need to win Olympic Games gold. He could certainly become the fastest ever New Zealand 1,500-metre runner. But you are ultimately measured by what you do at the Olympic Games. And Hayden Wild, well, what an extraordinary young man he is. What's the name of the band again, Ben? I don't know the correct pronunciation. It's either, I think it's live. Oh, live, yeah, of course it is, yeah. Yeah, I don't no. know if it's live or live. It's no, it's a- live. Yeah, no, no. Sorry. I'm a bit, I've got to be honest, mate. I'm a little bit flat tonight for some reason. We've had sort of um, for a whole lot of family things going on at the moment. And um, I'm just not quite seeing the new ball, mate. My nervous system just doesn't feel like it's up. Like, I reckon if I was playing in the English Premier League, I'd be subbed at some point in this game. You just have those days some days, don't you? Oh, we, everyone gets them. Kind yeah. of, it's either kind of time of year. It's lots been, oh, well, lots has been going I've, on. I've, and got, I've got time, but I'm, if it was Test cricket, I'm swinging and missing just outside of off. So I'm quite haven't got my timing right. I'm sort of hoping as the evening progresses, I might start hitting beach balls. Waiting for the drinks break. Yeah, maybe just to change it up. You know, maybe just need to slow things down or speed things up a little bit. Um, look, um, we just had Craig Kirkwood on the program, coach of uh, Sam Tanner, Hayden Wild. It's interesting, isn't it? The responsibilities these coaches have on their shoulders. Don't have a lot of resource given to them. Um, got to get athletes peaking on given days. Not 14 other players around them to sometimes help these athletes. Uh, go underneath the radar, don't they? And yet, how often do we see our coaches in charge of netball and rugby, uh, cricket, picking up these sort of Queen's Honours Awards? I, I sort of struggle with that a little bit. Um, well, I mean, if you're going to give them to our profile coaches and our so-called profile sports, then I think sometimes we need to go a little bit below that as well and recognise the likes of the Craig Kirkwoods and the Gary Hollywoods and swimming and, um, you know, some of our other coaches who are actually trying to get athletes out of New Zealand competing on a truly, truly global stage. Uh, look, I just had a text come in from Michael just changing things up and moving back to the oval ball. What do you think of the Bunnings MPC 14 teams for one trophy, no premiership, no championship? Well, I think it's a great concept, but I'd just like to see it as a straight round robin. I still don't like the two divisions with the crossovers and then the way they've sort of set the semi-finals up. I still believe that the MPC should be the premier competition in New Zealand. It should replace Super Rugby, but the unions need to somehow find a way of bringing in some sort of commercial arrangement, private ownership, public ownership. And I think that we could have here in New Zealand the equivalent of the English Premier League. I think all of the 14 major unions all just have such a rich history. 
whether it be winning the Ranfurly Shield, whether it be producing All Blacks or having their moment in the sun. I've got to say, Ben, I'm struggling to watch the NPC. Why is that? Maybe because there's just been too much rugby on. Maybe it's because New Zealand rugby just haven't done their job well enough to earn back my respect for the sport. But I think what highlighted me over the weekend is the fact that we saw Wellington lose to Northland. We saw Auckland lose to Bay of Plenty. And we saw Canterbury lose to Taranaki. Now, you can say that's great. Look at the competition. It's even. But with so much emphasis played on placed on now schoolboy rugby and schoolboy rugby being what's keeping the All Blacks going and really where all the talent's coming from, it's got to be a concern that Wellington, Auckland and Canterbury, which do have the major rugby competitions, are as awful as they are. And what it actually highlights is just how poor senior club rugby is, particularly in Auckland. And what a disgrace it is that New Zealand rugby have not addressed or put greater resource into club rugby. And if there's one area, we can sit here and we can debate about whether Ian Foster should be the all-black coach. We can sit here and debate about the makeup of super rugby. Should it have South Africa? Should it have Australian teams? Should it have Pacifica teams? Um, how many games do we have divisions, etc.? But if we don't get senior club rugby right, it doesn't matter what we do in the layers above that. You're eroding the game. You're taking a major part of a player's development away. And I think you're going to see a far greater dropout of players who perhaps come through the game who at school didn't have size and see no pathway beyond school. And so the area that New Zealand rugby, I think, needs to address more than anything, yes, they've got to have greater transparency in the appointments of coaches, greater due diligence in that area, but they have to invest in senior club rugby. They need to put emphasis on that. If I am New Zealand rugby or I'm a consultant to New Zealand rugby, I go to Sky Television, the broadcast partner. I say, stop broadcasting schoolboy rugby. Start broadcasting club rugby at a senior level and let's bring in a national club championship not dissimilar to the way the New Zealand secondary schools are set up. So you have the North Harbour champion, the Auckland champion, the Northland champion, the Waikato champion. You might have a Super 8 championship which involves Manawatu, Hawke's Bay, Bay of Plenty, somewhere in there, Wellington. And then you go into a top four type playoff situation. And that then becomes the stepping stone. I don't know. I haven't been around the club rugby scene a lot, so I could be wrong here. But I remember going back 15 years ago and how important it was for clubs to see their kind of guys reach that next level and reach the All Blacks. Uh, my local club is uh, Silverdale Rugby. Yes. Uh, located north of Auckland. And I think the last All Black to come from there, and like I say, forgive me if I'm wrong, was Greg Rawlinson. Yep, and, South African. Yeah, lock, and uh, yep. Luke McAllister was there as well. Yeah, because Charlie McAllister coached them and took them to a North Harbour club final, I think. Yep. Yeah, and I remember when those guys were in the All Blacks, it was quite a big deal for, for the whole area that we've got two guys from from the club playing and like representing the All Blacks. But it, I, like I say, I could be wrong, but I don't feel like when a mm. 
player makes your blanks the whole club thing isn't like a big thing like it used to be now it's all about the school they went to instead I mean I watched that Auckland Bay of Plenty game on a replay and the skills from Auckland yeah and you've got to put give credit to the Bay of Plenty but let's be honest based on what you see here with the 1A comp and what you see here in terms of the size admittedly you've got North Harbour and you've got County so the, the hub of Auckland is still reduced but if they're the best club rugby players that we have got, then we are in a world of trouble because the skills were absolutely diabolical, awful. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. 0800-150-811. How important is club rugby in terms of the longevity and the sustainability of the game and how important is it in the context of development and future All Blacks? You've only got to look at the recent results of the All Blacks. We're seeing this first generation off the back of televised first 15 rugby. They're not that good, are they? Or perhaps they're not that hardened. Or perhaps they're prima donnas. Or perhaps they've got too much celebrity. Have they been knocked down enough pegs at senior club rugby once they've got out of school? Have they learned how to lose coming out of these top schools that have poached everybody? Do they understand what adversity is? 0800-150-811 is the number. You can text us here on 8833. Equally, if you do want to uh, have a chat about Craig Kirkwood, who I just had on the program, who coaches Sam Tanner, Hayden Wild, you've got some observations on that. Love to hear from you. Just a reminder, we are going to talk some motorsport. Uh, we're going to uh, catch up with David Turner after 8 o'clock, look at Scotty McLaughlin, uh, also look at Shane Van Gisbergen, and, and then we will go back into a talkback type format as well. 0800 150 811 is the number. Why do we go with a little bit of disco there, Ben? Just thought I thought I might see that new ball a bit better. Yeah, a little bit of the Bee Gees. Well, sometimes you do have to mix it up. You've got to move away from Led Zeppelin. Hey, really good that text that's just coming off the little back of that editorial I did on uh, Senior Club Rugby. This is from Brad. He says, couldn't agree more, Re Club Rugby. Hopefully a fair chunk of the Silver Lakes deal gets to the clubs. Far too much emphasis put on high school rugby. Get Club Rugby on TV. It's in desperate need of at least some sort of a greater limelight. Face it. You don't go from high school straight into professional rugby, or very rarely. Club rugby, being the middleman, needs a really good look at and desperately needs a solution. Yeah, 100%, man, 100%. You've also got to cater for the late developer. You need to send kids who perhaps don't go through puberty until later or just physically not as big as other kids. You have to let them understand that, hey, if I don't make first 15 here, the real pathway, the real stepping stone is senior club rugby. Can you imagine being a superstar at a school here in Auckland who's only playing in the 1B or the 1C? Do you think they're getting recognised? Do you think they're getting identified? Do you think they believe that they can go on seeing how much further, seeing how much the 1A competition in Auckland is celebrated? And if the school competition is so good, why is the standard of the Auckland... MPC side so poor where is the depth yes a lot of Auckland players now head off to Canterbury Corey Callow the likes of the good you boys
but it's also a demonstration that the club scene is incredibly weak here. Concussion is another big issue as well. Just on the Silver Lakes deal, uh, look, I don't believe for one moment that much of that is going to go to the clubs. I don't. You've already got the Players Association taking a large chunk of it. And those top players, in my opinion, it's the tail wagging the dog. I think there's a lot of talk. I think there'll be PowerPoint presentations that demonstrate, oh, no, Silver Lake money will go down through to club rugby. I still think the best thing that can happen to club rugby is putting it on TV, getting rid of schoolboy rugby, telling the history of the clubs. There used to be a time here when commentators commentating rugby in this country would refer to a player and the club they came from. Joe Stanley, out of the Ponsonby Rugby Club. Sean Fitzpatrick, out of the Marist Rugby Club. Now, what do you hear? Jack Goodyear, out of Manavik Grammar School. The Iwani Brothers, out of Auckland Grammar School. Out of Christ College. Christchurch Boys High School. Fielding Ag. Very little reference now to the clubs. Another text. Good text, this one. The trouble with club rugby is the same in New Zealand as it is in Australia. Saturday trading. As more and more people have to work Saturdays, they are taken out of the player pool. If you go back, you will see as more and more shopping hours happened, more and more players dropped from the scene. Blackie in Perth. And thank you for texting all the way in Perth. Really nice text there, Blackie. Look, it's a really good point, isn't it? But, so we put greater resource into club rugby. I mean, if you want to be an all black and you want to be serious about sport, you've got to make those sacrifices. It's no different than cycling. It's no different than athletics. It's no different than swimming. If you really want it, you've just got to say, well, I can't work on a Saturday. You've just got to find a way of it not happening. And that's the hardcore reality of it. But people are not going to make that sacrifice if they don't see it as a genuine pathway through to professionalism. Because let's be honest, once you're in the system at schoolboy level, it's very hard to get out of the system. And I know North Harbour Rugby Union here in Auckland got hammered of it as being maybe a little woke or a little bit PC. Hey, we're going to get rid of our rep teams. But I actually disagree with it. Because rep teams are just full of big kids. And I think what New Zealand rugby has always had over the rest of the world is from a young age we develop the skill set and then we build the player. And I think that model still exists in the South Island. I still think that model exists in places like Canterbury, but I don't think it exists in Auckland anymore. And it's more than coincidence that Auckland rugby hasn't really been that strong or Blues rugby hasn't been that strong for a long time until recently. Let's cater for the late developer. Let's build the skill sets. Let's put emphasis back on senior club rugby and let's tidy up the concussion. I'm not a big one in believing that players need to get paid and all this other stuff. A lot of sports don't get any payment at all. Athletes are there because they want to be there. For 120 years, you weren't paid to play rugby in this country for 105 years. You did it because you loved it. And I still believe there are people out there who would play just because they do love it. But it's got to be enticing. It's got to be inviting.
Talking motorsport after eight, you're listening to SENZ. One minute after eight, well, we can jump up and down and we can ask questions about why our netball team didn't so do so well at the Commonwealth Games. Third, really, well, third in a three-horse race, probably considered by most to be a bit of a failure. The All Blacks, well, they haven't been at their best, have they? The men's cricket team, well, they were well and truly cleaned out in England, even though the one-day side's doing okay in the West Indies. But one thing that is always rock solid in this country are the achievements and the overachievements of our racing car drivers in motorsport. The sport is arguably in the best place it has been, going back to the times of the McLarens, the Denny Holmes, and that wonderful era in the 1960s and the 1970s. Over the weekend, the results continued. Shane Van Gisbergen, well, pretty much got both hands, hasn't he, on another Supercast Championship, and Scotty McLaughlin, Ever impressive finishing third in the Bomarito Automotive Group 500 between behind Joseph Newgarden and David Malakis. To talk motorsport, Mr. Motorsport himself, David Turner joins us on the program. David, good evening. Welcome. Good evening, Mark. How are you this evening? Very good. Let's put that performance from Scott McLaughlin into context. Um, I, I guess we're so used to Scott, Docks, uh, Scott Dixon having won, what, 53-odd races over his career that if a New Zealand driver's not winning, maybe we think it's failure. But put this performance from Scotty uh, from Scotty McLaughlin in context. Well, I spoke with him yesterday and I spoke with him uh, on Friday as well. And the context, I guess, is that he now feels very comfortable in the IndyCar world. He's moved on from the supercar world. He is enjoying living in the States. He's embraced all of that, and uh, and that's brought him a lot of confidence, I think, at the same time. And he, he's clearly enjoying what he does. And just like any sport, and I heard you talking about, you know, working on Saturdays and rugby and things like that just before, it, it's, the, it's a similar thing. If you don't enjoy it, don't do it. You know, mm. that was always a Nicky Lauder phrase. And McLaughlin, he's enjoying it right now, and the talent is rising from him. You know, this is only his second year in the IndyCar Championship, he's come away with multiple wins this year. He's proving himself, more importantly, on the ovals as well. Very strong at Texas, not too bad at Iowa, strong at Indy, and then strong over the weekend on the last oval of the year. So he's he's got a long future in front of him, and he's with the, one of the best teams in the game, the Team Penske. You know, there's there's not better to be with than, than that, and there's only a few other teams that you'd want to be with. So, you know, I, th- I think the the future is very strong for him. He's got two very, very strong teammates. So that's probably where the, the battle lines will be drawn ultimately is the race against your teammates. Mm. You talk about him being comfortable on the ovals. I think from a lot of people who are not familiar with motorsport, we look at street circuits, we look at the tracks that, say, the supercars race on, that Formula One race on, and we think surely they would be much harder in terms of racing, uh, in terms of what's required technically. But I sort of get the sense that oval racing is a lot more complex and a lot more complicated than it looks. Yeah, it is. It, it, it really is. And uh, it, it, I guess to the un, unknown, you don't appreciate it. And even when you witness it, maybe the first time you kind of go, uh, yeah, but it is in, in the variation of them. If you look at a track like Indianapolis, you know, 2.5 miles once round, it's really a giant rectangle rather than an oval. Uh, and then you look at where they were in Missouri the weekend at, at Gateway, and that's just over, um, I think it's one and one-eighth of a mile or something silly number like that. But 
it's it's a more a short, what they refer to as a short oval rather than a super speedway, um, and completely different discipline. And the nature of that oval is the turns one and two are completely different to three and four. And uh, you find that at most ovals is the fact that even though the the tracks may look like they're just a circle, if you like, um, the turns are actually all quite different, and the car does different things uh, within those turns, and it's. It's a very, very demanding aspect of the racing, and I think that's a credit to IndyCar as well as the fact that to win an IndyCar championship like Dixon has and, and whoever wins this year, you have to succeed at all the disciplines within IndyCar. So that's the permanent circuits, the street courses, the the super speedways, and then the small smaller ovals. Um, you can't you can't be weak at any one of those disciplines anymore. Maybe, you know, back in 2002 when Dixon started out in this game, you could afford to be maybe slightly weaker at one of those, but certainly now you can't. You know, we're going into the final two rounds of the championship and there's still, mathematically, there's still seven of them that are in the hunt. Now, I've been involved with IndyCar for 22 years now directly and this championship's gone to the wire every single year and you know, Formula One can't say that. Uh, there's a lot of championships that can't say that. You know, obviously across the ditch at the moment in V8 Supercars, we're quite happy with the outcome of that because it looks like it'll go to the Giz. But IndyCar does this year on year, and I, I just think that that's a huge testament to the sport. Mm-hmm. Now, is the last race of IndyCars is that still double points? No, no. The only double points race now in the season, which I still I, personally I feel very strongly that it shouldn't be, is the Indy 500. And, and a great example of that actually is probably this year's 500, where if you look at someone like Dixon, who, you know, was odds on to win the race uh, and then, you know, made that error and ended up finishing 21st, that cost him a massive amount of points. And the fact that he's even in this championship battle now says something about mm. just how calculated and how good Dixon is, because he's come back from being pretty much written off after, after Indy back in May to be, you know, third in the championship now and a very, very strong contender for what would be a record-breaking seventh title. So, you know, there's, um, uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of the double points no matter where they are. It just kind of can sway a championship in the wrong direction when it's not, you know, really necessary. Maybe you could look at Marcus Ericsson, who did come out of Indy with the double points, and that's made him a championship contender across the whole year. So it can work both ways. It just depends which camp you're in, really. Now, Joseph Newgarden, who is a teammate of Scotty McLaughlin's, won the race over the weekend. I read, I read a really nice article where uh, Newgarden spoke very highly of Scotty McLaughlin. He says, look, we're really good mates. We do spend a lot of time off the track together, which is not easy because we are still mm-hmm. racing each other. We're still vying for the crown, uh, which is a testament to both these uh, fine race car drivers, a testament to both of their personalities. How difficult is it to have that friendship in a team environment? I mean, you've been around a lot of teams. We said in Formula One, there's not often a lot of love lost between the two drivers in a certain team. No, there's not. Um, actually, to sort of give some value to that. Uh, I remember back in May, I spoke to um, Roman Grosjean at, at Indy, and it was almost exactly that question. And he said, in Formula One, you know, you would never go after a race weekend and go and have a beer with a fellow competitor. You just wouldn't do that. It was unheard of. And 
you seldom perhaps even talk to some of those competitors and yet he said you know here in IndyCar you know everyone's doing that and you know it's a family affair and all, all of those sorts of things and it really is it honestly is but at the end of the day um, and Joseph said it in the press conference yesterday after his race win is the fact that it's a competitive sport and as big as competitors are quite often as teammates and in this case they are Will Power and Scott McLaughlin um, but the number one priority just as it is for the Ganassi team is one of their cars must win this championship. Roger Penske be, will be expecting one of his three drivers, because they're all still in with a chance, whilst McLaughlin's is the hardest of them all. They are still all in with a chance to win the championship. Just as much as Chip Ganassi's going, well, I've got Dixon, Ericsson and Palau still there, and I expect one of them to win the championship. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a team game as well. And the bond that those teams have uh, with their team owners, particularly those two teams, is very, very strong. Like all three, um, of the, each of the drivers that I've just mentioned for each of their uh, respective car owners, they are very loyal. You know, obviously, there's issues with Alex Plough at the moment and contracts and stuff like that, but the team fostering is very strong, but you still end up having to race your teammate. If you look at, back at Texas this year, you know, McLaughlin had that race pretty much won in New Garden bet him on the line, you know, and that, so, and that would have made McLaughlin two for two for the championship, you know, at the championship chase at that stage of the season. So um, I, I think it's great, you know, and we're seeing the same maybe with the Arrow McLaren team where Pato Award has very publicly been saying that he wants um, Felix Rosenquist to stay with the team and that's still an undecided thing. But there's synergy between a lot of those drivers I think the connection between McLaughlin and Newgarden is also the fact that they're of similar age um, in a lot of those things. So they, they gel together quite well. But it's very hard. Dan, Dan Weldon was an incredibly close friend of Dixon's, you know, and you end up with a, a tragedy that cost yeah. Dan his life. Um, it's very hard to bounce back from when, or to compartmentize as a driver when your best mate ends up losing his life to the sport. So you've got to be very careful about how close you get as well because you just you just have to. Mm. Let's change it up and let's talk supercars. Shane Van Gisbergen um, produced a flawless display, won both supercar races at the Sandown Raceway, has extended his lead mm-hmm. in the championship. Um, is, is he just a, is he like Scotty McLaughlin of yesteryear? Is he just in a class of his own or why is he so good? I, th- I think he is a little bit at the moment, probably helped by the fact that McLaughlin's not there to give him a hard time. Um, but, you know, they've got good machinery underneath him. I'm not taking that away from, from him either. And, and he's, he isn't a bit of a class of his own, but he, he tends to adapt to no matter what he's he's driving. You know, we're going to see him here in the World Rally Championship event you know, in a month or so's time as well. So he's, he's a, it's a natural like that, but... Um, Again, singing McLaughlin's praises, the way he's taken to driving a single-seater after all those years in a touring car is phenomenal as well. So, uh, as you said in your intro, you know, there's great talent in motorsport in this country, and Van Gisbergen is just another another factor of that, you know. And uh, just as much as Andre Heimgartner, who's in the Supercar Championship as well, you know, Andre's a very talented driver as well. And it's just sometimes all the pieces align. Uh, and, you know, you go on and you create characters like Van Gisbergen, and um, it's a phenomenal thing, especially when they come from New Zealand. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Shane Van Gisbergen's come out and said, look, having this lead in the championship and having the commanding lead, I mean, it would take a miracle for him to lose it. Now, it does take some pressure off him now heading into Bathurst. He can go in just a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, I actually think that that makes him incredibly dangerous to his fellow competitors at Bathurst because if he's relaxed, then he's just going to make them all look silly, really, at the end of the day. There should be no reason why he won't do that, you know, because if he's relaxed, the the atmosphere within the team will be relaxed and they'll get on with the job without the pressure maybe that they would normally have. Bathurst is still that sort of unique race where... Um, the, the pressure will still be there. It's a bit like an Indy 500, you know, the jewel and the crown events on the motorsport calendars. So it will still be there. And, of course, you've got your teammate to take into a consideration at, at Bathurst as well. So it's, you're not doing it all by yourself. So there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle. But it, it will make him very, very strong around there and, you know, probably goes in as a, a decent favourite for the race as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other news, David, that we might not be up, that we might be up, up to play with? What? Well, I think the the big thing at the moment is the ripple effect that's happening with uh, McLaren, uh, and I use the word McLaren in general, um, and all of their drivers and, and the situations that they're in where you've got Alex Palau from um, Ganassi at the moment um, effectively going to court with Chip Ganassi over whether or not Alex is leaving the team to race with McLaren next year. The clarification in that is, is it the McLaren IndyCar team? Is it the McLaren Formula One team? It certainly isn't the McLaren Formula E team. I know that much. Um, so there's, there's issues there. Then you've got Daniel Ricciardo in, in the current McLaren Formula 1 team. Will he stay or will he go? Um, will he get paid out? If he gets paid out, it's around $25 million US. But then there's criteria on what he can and can't do. Um, I did the sums the other day, and you basically had over 10 drivers vying for about seven seats at the moment, or six seats. So there's... It's interesting to see how that plays out. There's a lot of people that are locked into deals um, within Formula One and IndyCar particularly. Uh, It shows you how hard it is to get seats in in both those categories, particularly even IndyCar now, and the car count's higher than it's ever been. So it's uh, it's one that you watch with interest because the ripple effects from those uh, makes it that much harder for new blood to get into the sport or if someone like Ricardo gets you know, push to one side and Oscar Piastri comes in in his place, then you are breeding new blood into the sport. So, um, you know, again, with Palau, if he was to leave Ganassi's, then who gets the number 10 seat next year? And after last weekend, you'd have to say, if Chip was a smart guy, he'd try and sign up David Malukas, that's for sure, because there's talent in the making. There's absolutely no doubt about that. OK, David, look, we'll leave it there. But before we do let you go, um, how, how come you're doing some wonderful things uh, across different forms of social media, including YouTube? So just tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how people can catch up with what you're doing. Yeah, well, the, the YouTube, uh, particularly, uh, it's a weekly show uh, called which goes under the banner. If you look on YouTube and search Race Control Magazine, you'll find it. It's called Racing World. Um, I do that every week. It's got a very strong focus towards IndyCar, but it does take into, it's also got a tie to, you know, many New Zealanders in, in motorsport, whether they're in Formula E like Mitch Evans and Nick Cassidy or Supercar or wherever. I'm very passionate about that. And as you well know, I'm, you know, trustee of the Motorsport Academy here as well. So I kind of keep an eye on that, but it does have a strong tangent towards IndyCar. So uh, that's, that's out every week on YouTube. And uh, that's a passion project of mine. And, in between, just like you, trying to do a real job as well. So uh, we enjoy all the things we do for the love of the sports that we all uh, feel very passionate about. 
David Turner, lovely to have you on the program. Thank you. Uh, David Turner there, uh, motorsport, uh, motorsport expert talking about the IndyCars, talking about the supercars. It is 17 minutes after 8. Telephone number on the program is 0800 150 uh, Shane Van Gisbergen, Scotty McLaughlin, two of New Zealand's most underrated sportsmen, or are they? It's hard, isn't it? Because in motorsport, there are so many categories, but it's almost like we don't appreciate, truly give these drivers credit because they're not in Formula One. But Formula One's not about the best driver. Formula One's about politics. It's about who's got money and who can buy a drive. And I think it was a really good point that David made around the Indy cars. I mean, you've got to be good in the oval circuits, the street circuits, and those established racetracks that are not ovals. And once again, five drivers in contention with two races to go. Very rarely do you see that in Formula One. And I must admit, because we've got a New Zealand point of view, I've had one in Scott Dixon and now Scotty McLaughlin, I'm taking a lot more interest. And when you take a lot more interest in something, you start to learn more about it. You start to actually realise perhaps how ignorant you've been of certain sports in the past or certain categories within a sport. But boy, motorsport is in just a wonderful place, isn't it? Chris Amon was the other New Zealand driver, of course, out of the 1960s and 70s, part of that wonderful era. Uh, if you want to talk some motorsport, you did watch that over the weekend, particularly the supercars, Bathurst. I'll be honest, I'm not an ex- a real expert in that area, so more than happy for you to take the lead on it. 0800 150 is the number. You can text us here on double eight double three. I'm going to touch on this a little bit after the break too. I just see that um, Ben's put up on social media on Twitter that Tony Johnson, rugby commentator, believes North Harbour have a good chance of winning the Ranfurly Shield. Does anybody care? Does anybody actually care anymore about the Ranfurly Shield? How many people are going to go along and watch North Harbour play if suddenly they win the Ranfurly Shield? Are they going to shut down the main street of Takapuna and have a street parade? And another, again, it's just another indictment on the New Zealand Rugby Union. And just how poorly... They've treated the game of rugby over the years outside of the All Blacks. If you joined the programme just before eight, I was talking about how dreadful Auckland were over the weekend against Bay of Plenty. And yet that's chosen from the Auckland Senior Club rugby competition. Dreadful. New Zealand rugby. Need to be investing in club rugby if you still believe that secondary school is where your talent comes through. They cannot, cannot afford to miss that stage of their development. 0800-150811. You can text us here on 8833. Somebody feel free to kick it off. Okay, Ben, enlighten me the music. Well, I don't. I, I believe it's the song's called "Love Me Again," but I've been trying to get a di- bit of a different variety going because when I played uh, 
the BGs before you were kind of uh, impressed. You were kind of like, oh, it brings a kind of different feel. So we're trying to bring change the variety a little bit till we kind of get that, uh, till we feel you've got the, the ball striking right. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting the nervous system up and I'm seeing it clearly and not swinging and missing outside off stump. Yeah, I don't know the song too well. All I know is that from playing uh, FIFA, the video game, the, the football video game, it's the only way I know the song, by the way, so... I've got quite a few songs on my uh, little selection here from just video games from over the years. So Now, I just want to emphasise for people too, tomorrow night um, from 9 o'clock through till 11, Dart Show, some of the best darts players in the world going to be joining Ben here for the World Series of Darts to be staged in Hamilton, Mystery Creek this weekend, or starting Friday night. So some of the big names that you've seen on television are going to be in studio here tomorrow night. Probably taking calls too. If you've got a question on darts, feel free. Jump on the pro- jump on the phones tomorrow between nine and eleven. Right, some texts that have come in. This comes from Dave. Hi, Mark. I care about Ranfilly Shield. Watch the crowd that turns up to McLean Park on Saturday. I will be curious to see what sort of crowd does turn up at McLean Park. I am slightly worried about Harbour's challenge. Mark, I did enjoy the interview with Arch Jelly a couple of Fridays ago and have listened to it again. That man does not sound like he is a hundred. The lamb with the nappy the same day was hilarious. Well, Dave, I'm just going to say this, and we haven't, we actually said this at seven. We're actually going to replay the Arch Jelly interview for you actually after 10 o'clock tonight for people that missed that. So, Arch Jelly, Sir John Walker's longtime coach, turned 100 the other week. We got him on the day before his 100th birthday, and you will not know this man is 100. He was that articulate, that astute, but talking about his 100 years on this planet, going right back to having Jack Lovelock. Yes, the great Olympic champion from 1936 remembers having Jack Lovelock coming to his school to talk to him. Was in the Navy in World War II. So we're going to replay that interview for you after 10 o'clock. Uh, just update too, so Dave refers to a lamb. I've got two young kids. We live out at Mirawai, which is north of Auckland, a little sort of uh, Waimalku, a little semi-sort of rural school, semi-rural school. Uh, not really, but they still have an agricultural day. So we're rearing these. We're rearing a lamb, and so you have the lamb running around the house. This thing was like a week old or two days old when we got it, and you put nappies on them so that you keep your house clean. So I got this cute little lamb running around with a nappy on it. Still got him. Slept in the bed last night. To be fair. Um, right, hey Mark, great to hear an in-depth conversation on motorsport. The Indy car has to be the most competitive and exciting form of motorsport, if not sport alone. I wish sometimes as Kiwis we had a bigger world view than our normal bread and butter sports. That comes from one. Yeah, look, I, I, I think, is media in this country slowly evolving? Um, is the definition of sport becoming broader? Yes and No. You've got to remember that television networks are ratings driven and they've got a small window in terms of their sports news. So they will tend to play the percentages. Most New Zealanders will like rugby. Okay, well, let's put some rugby on. Most New Zealanders will like some cricket. Most New Zealanders are aware of rugby league and netball, etc. So those sports still tend to get a lot more coverage. But at the same time, if you do look at the number of people watching television, mainstream television, it's also in decline. You look at the number of people watching rugby, playing rugby, going along to live rugby, it's in decline. Yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of parity or 
recognition between the media and the sports themselves. Read the trends. I've got to say, and I've got to be careful how I say this, but I wish I've got no problem with women's sport. But I would like to see women's sport. I'd like to see our swimmers getting more coverage. I'd like to see more of our women runners getting coverage, more of our women cyclists getting coverage, our women's water polo teams that have been really good at the World Championships on a truly global sport getting coverage than our women's rugby teams and our women's cricket teams because I think they're still minor sports. I think the interest in those has been manufactured because of the political environment in which we live in. And I think it actually takes valuable coverage away, I think, from a lot of other women athletes that I think deserve it more, who I think are more professional, who I think are more elite Might want to have your say, 0800 150811. How much interest in the Ranfilly Shield? Does anyone really care now? Auckland win it? No one, no one cares. Other than the absolute hard, diehard fan, which is about less than... I think of the Auckland population and that is another area and issue that needs to be addressed with New Zealand rugby if the Mitre 10 Cup or the MPC became the sole competition and the focal point we had our All Blacks playing Ranfurly Shield was a part of it I think rugby would just be so much more engaging And sometimes you've got to go back to the future to get it right. Hi, Brian. Hey, mate. Hey, it's great to have you back talking. Oh, thank you. Look, I think um, I think NPC is it's a no-brainer that we've just got to get NPC back back as as the most important part of rugby. I mean, Super Rugby was you know was 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 a good idea and all the rest of it, but I, I just I just don't see it as being important. If, if you went to see Auckland or, or the the the, um, the competition coming out of Auckland through the through the clubs going into playing playing for a team that was Auckland, and they were playing the same thing from Wellington or Manawatu or wherever it might have been, that's that's where the sport is. It's got at that that we talked about this. I remember talking about this with you probably at least. Eight years ago, ten years ago, mm. it's just a no-brainer for me, Mark. Honestly, you know, um, rugby more than anything else needs to get itself down to the grassroots, and that's that's the way I see it. And I mean, I, I love the All Blacks and my team, you know, but but um, well, man alive, we've got it. We've got it. Uh, you know, uh, why get these guys sitting on the sideline? No, look, I agree. I mean, you, you take a guy like Stephen Perifera at the moment. We just haven't seen him, have we? He hasn't played all year for the All Blacks. We haven't seen him play there for Taranaki. Um, played for the Blues, clearly. But I look, I, look, it wouldn't be. Any, it still would have some challenges because it does need a. It would need some serious professional know, yeah. backing. But I think, look, it can be done. It can be done. There's nothing to say that it's not impossible. It's nothing to say that those unions can't subcontract private owners to look after these national provincial championships. There's still room to bring some players in from overseas. But what you just want 
is, you know, your good you boys playing back up for Northland. You want your Hodgmans yeah. playing for Auckland. You want your Canterbury boys. And you just want um, Laumapa and players like well, that going back and well, playing the, for Manawatu. The, the, the NBC back in action, mate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, na- and, national, provincial, national provincial competition. Simple, you know, play, play that we've got such fantastic, fantastic team, potential teams around the country. I'd go and watch that. And then what you actually end up doing is you use teams like Wairapa Bush, Horafenua, Kapiti as almost like what yeah. the major league teams do. They have those as those AAA and AA teams. They're feeder teams. And so they still play in a competition, but that's where that next core of player ends up going. But the way you do that, and we discussed this after 7 o'clock, is you put priority back on senior club rugby. Make that the focal mm. point. Put that back on television. And so that then totally. secondary yeah. school sport, you go, hey, I've come through my first 15, but I wasn't on TV. Oh. Now I've got to go into senior club rugby, and I need to be seen there. And that is my chance. It takes size out of the equation. You find out who's got the skill set. And those clubs yeah. then those clubs then are affiliated with these unions. Totally. I agree entirely. I've, you know, I've said this for years, and, and I've seen now where we've gone to the point that um, – there's so many um, fractions and, and, you know, weird stuff going on. It's far too much rugby on. And, and you know, I mean, I, I love seeing the um, first 15 play. I watch a little bit, you know, an hour or two every now and then sort of thing, but not much at all. But I, I love seeing it. It's great. It's great rugby. But, man, alive, you, you've got to have those competitions. You've got the competition has got to come back to the provincial levels, that the best players in the, that provincial area playing and hard yeah, hard. We'll, we'll and, look- and that's where we surprise you. We yeah, surprise the world. If we, if we do that, we surprise the international teams, Mark. That's the other thing. Well, we're not going to get South. No, Af- we can... We're not going to get South Africa back playing in Super Rugby. So that Super Rugby competition's no, gone. No, and no look, way. no offence, but Moana Pacifica, you can't really ever see being truly challenging the top teams because they're only going to get the leftovers because the Pacific Island mm. players that are real quality and young are going to get picked up first and foremost by the New Zealand sides, and that's just the way it's always going to be. The Australian yeah, teams, they're the woeful. Australian rugby is not going to get any better in the short term, and so Super Rugby is just an absolute mess. But yet, you know, I look at the mm. English Premier League. You go back and you look at the second and third divisions. Just just use the old, you know, Championship, Premiership, First Division, etc. Even you know, you go back and you have a look at Blackpool, and you go and read the history of it. Then you come here and you go back and you read the history of Wired Upper Bush. Yeah. You read the history of the mm. great Manawatu sides, and go back and talk about yeah, the Marlborough, which is now yeah. Tasman winning the Ranfurly yeah. Shield back in '73, etc. And all of our unions have that rich history. And what a wonderful yeah. thing that they can get to go and sell. Talk about their famous all. Blacks talk totally. about their wonderful Absolutely. errors, you yeah. know. But the Keith Quinn, the Keith Quinn sort of um, mentality of, of of a rugby game when the, the scrum was going down, there was someone injured, whatever. There'd be a, a bit of a chin wag about the grandfather of the guy that was on the field or whatever. Mm. All that stuff is so important. If you do, if you lose that, you lose. Well, we have, we have, but we have, but we have lost that, Brian, and we've lost that, know, Brian. I and look, and now look at look at our All Black team. I know, couldn't agree with you more. And you know, it's a bloody, it's a pain, pain in the neck. But we've got to go back to NPC, and now we've got an opportunity. I don't see any reason why, with all this money coming in from the um, Salt Lake thing, whatever they call it, you know, um, we've got to get, we've got to get the the money down to encourage people into rugby, like um, at, at, the, at the grassroots level. It's just, a, it's just a no-brainer. Mm, yeah, and and look, yeah. I, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything better than seeing. 
all of the best players out of Auckland playing all of the best players out of North Auckland or, yeah, or but, Wellington or whatever. But, but even, <laughs> even, even, you know, start that, might it, yeah, thanks, Brian, but even start that competition, but making sure too that we see some of these players playing at a club level as well below it. And we want to see our All Blacks playing regularly. Get rid of this All Blacks having control over the rest of New Zealand rugby and telling players when they can play and when they can't play. But we do, we throw rugby at people now and it's no longer about quality, it's just quantity and it's not a good thing. Like you look forward to your roast dinner once every two weeks, you start having a roast dinner every night, it's no longer a roast dinner, is it? You no longer look forward to it. I'm always a little bit reluctant when I come on the station to just go rugby, rugby, rugby. Because I'm just not sure there's that real broad appeal for it. And when I tend to go on rugby, I'm just not sure I'm going to get a level of engagement by celebrating it at a local level because I'm not sure there's enough to celebrate. So you tend to find yourself being a little bit on the negative and addressing the issues. It's not the way I want to conduct. It's not the way I want it to, you know, it's not the way I want to be. But I'm smart enough to read the room that rugby just simply does not have its place that it once did. And it is continually continuing to decline. 0800 is the number. You can text us here on 8833. That's 0800 Jump on the phone. Give us a call. We just talked to David Turner. We've been talking about Scotty McLaughlin and uh, Indy Cars. We've talked about Shane Van Gisbergen. We had Craig Kirkwood on the program after 7 o'clock who coaches both um, Sam Tanner, our 1,500-metre runner, who became the second fastest ever New Zealander at the Commonwealth Games recently, also coaches Hayden Wilde, talking about his coaching, his philosophy. We're going to talk English Premier League football after 9 o'clock with Guy McRae out of the UK. That's got a bit of a rap tune to it, hasn't it, Guy McRae, from the UK? I've got to stop rapping. I'm terrible at it. You're sitting there thinking that you know this, but you don't. No, I don't. There was a little bit of, um, little bit of almost a little bit of Bon Jovi in there at one point. I was thinking, what is this? What is this? It's, uh, I, I would describe it as the one-hit wonder of my childhood in terms of when I was a kid, that this was probably the biggest one-hit wonder you could ever imagine. It's by a Finnish uh, group called uh, Bomb Funk MC. Yeah, I'm not... F- I'll be honest, I'm not that familiar with it. I could have been overseas at the time when I probably wasn't listening to a lot of music. Um, I'll get you to play a little bit later the song that you opened the show with that I was convinced was Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin, um, and you really just embarrassed me publicly, and that's fine, Ben. I, I, mate, I'm, I'm used to it. Well, would you like to know a fact about that song? Yeah. On the song credits for that particular song I played, you know, have you heard of Quentin, uh, is it Quentin Tarantino? The, yep. the writer, he's credited for that song. Oh, brilliant. Okay, all right. Um, 16 minutes away from 9 o'clock, there was a little um, audio promotional piece there from Tony Kemp, talk, clearly a little soundbite they took off one of the breakfast shows, talking about Stacey Jones and really probably from his point of view, if he wants to further his coaching or further advance himself, he probably needs to head off to the Super League. 
I'm going to say this. I think with the Warriors, the likes of the Iros, the likes of the Stacey Jones, I think it's just time for those guys to just all move on. I think they've just been in that club for too long. Um, it just needs a complete overhaul. It just needs some fresh faces, some fresh thinking. It just needs to re- be rebranded. I thought Chris Ratu's article in the New Zealand Herald today was brilliant. Um, if you haven't read it, I might read some snippets out of it a little bit later. You know, one week we are beating up on a really bad dogs team and then we just go and basically not front up and be completely, utterly gutless against the North Queensland Cowboys. Um, yeah, it's hard on the Warriors what to actually say because I just find myself repeating myself and I just end up being a doom and gloom merchant. I really do. And so it's, yeah. But one thing I will say, it does annoy me that the media just don't scrutinise them enough here. There's no scrutiny at all. Not really. And Cameron George and these guys should be gone. Should just be gone. Dreadful. Ben. No, I'm going to try veer this away from the Warriors a bit, but it's still relatable. My guess, my concern is, and it's saying that uh, Brian McLennan, who of course used to coach the Warriors and the Kiwis, has brought up before, there is a bit of concern about the lack of New Zealand rugby league coaches coming through the ranks. Yep. So we look in the NRL and Super League. The only New Zealand head coach we have is Willie Poaching, yep. and he's at Wakefield Trinity. And they're not grammar old boy Willie Poaching. They're not going too flash at the moment. I think they're near the more, near the bottom more than the top. But it's quite concerning that our New Zealand rugby league coaches, when they kind of get these roles, they are in these assistant roles. There's no yeah, kind of that, right. no pathway, no development, yeah. and it is quite concerning. Yeah, but you've also got to be careful is that every time there's a Warriors player that ends up finishing, they seem to slot straight into assistant roles or in some sort of coaching role. And I wonder whether that shuts the door on pathways of those club coaches that do come through. Because you've got Bluey McLennan, you had his father, who was one of the great coaches, uh, through the Mount Albert Lions and did a lot there. But I've always said this, you know, you've got to, when you're bringing through young rugby league talent, you've got to make sure they're well coached in those informative years. And if you don't have good coaching in place here, then of course they're going to come through one-dimensional. And I'm th- 100% correct. New Zealand Rugby League, in association with Auckland Rugby League and the different regions around the country, need to look at their coach development and say, what are the pathways here? Where are our good coaches and why are we not identifying them? And if there are good coaches, is the politics too great within the game at a club level, at a junior level, to keep our good coaches in the game? Do you have to be a certain type of person? Do you need to be a certain type of personality? Do you need to have some famous name in the background to be taken seriously? I don't know. But you're 100%. I mean, I even look at the NRL. There's not a lot of great coaching depth in the NRL, is there? No, we're not for I Kiwis. I mean, suddenly the Tigers, you know, and they go back to what they promised Benji the job in two years' time. That's another example for me. Um, what makes Benji Marshall such a great coach suddenly? Oh, I guess he's going to be working as the assistant. You had just David Kidwell leave, and he's now with the Argentinian rugby team. You've got Stephen Kearney, who's had cracks at being a head coach but hasn't worked out. But see, they're all just former players, aren't they? Well, they are, yeah, but I, I was going to say, my next point was going to be, does this come back to the kind of failure of the club system that we have going, as we were talking about with rugby before, because the club system, I guess, in rugby league, I guess, is not there as it kind of once was, no, it was well, as the Barter Card Cup is not kind of perceived or, as a premier competition or, anymore. Or the Fox Memorial is not as strong as it once was, and that's sometimes the danger that happens when you get a team like the Warriors coming in 
and becoming the point of view at a club level. We've seen it with the breakers in basketball. Now, fortunately, the National Basketball League seems to be doing okay. But sometimes the problem is when you get these franchises in, like I think the National Football League in soccer is a lesser product now because so much emphasis is placed on the Phoenix. And so be careful what you wish for. Really, really good point. Coming up to 11 minutes away from nine, telephone numbers 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. After nine o'clock, we're going to talk some English Premier League football. There we go. Got a nice little uh, feel to that one there, Ben. Good music, good music. Um, after nine o'clock, Guy McRae from the UK. Guy McRae from the UK. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a rap thing, hasn't it? Uh, broadcast that I've worked with. Uh, wonderful, wonderful football analyst. Mad King Tottenham Hotspur fan. We're going to talk some English Premier League. His mob getting up over Wolves 1-0. Tell you what, Wolves are unlucky. Oh, I think they deserved at least a point in that game, if not all three. But that is football for you. Man City, Newcastle drawing three all. Leeds beating Chelsea, three nil. Mighty Liverpool take on. I was going to say the scum that is Manchester United. Is that too harsh a word? Because there's a lot of Manchester United fans out there hating me right now. Being played at Old Trafford. One of the questions I'm going to ask Guy, is it harder for Liverpool to beat a bad Manchester United side than perhaps other clubs because of the rivalry, because of the tradition, because of the hate that United have for Liverpool, more so than any other club? Just such an enthralling competition, though. After 10 o'clock, replay the interview that we did with Arch Jelly, who turned 100 years of age, the coach of the great Sir John Walker. Interview that I did about just over a week ago, uh, the day before Arch did turn 100. You'll listen to this guy and you will not believe he is 100 years old. Very, very astute, very together for a centurion. That after 10 o'clock. Keep your thoughts coming here on 8833. Don't forget the lines are open 0800 Right, it is one minute after nine. We are just trying to get hold of Guy McRae out of the UK to talk all things English Premier League. Huge game taking place tomorrow morning. I think it's seven o'clock New Zealand time. One of the biggest games in the world, one of the biggest sporting events that happens twice a year, and that is Liverpool-Manchester United, an audience of well over 500 million. Not exaggerated either when you look at the size of those clubs globally, particularly in Asia, Australasia, North South America. Um, perhaps a lot of people expecting just Liverpool to walk all over Manchester United, but I'm not sure that will be the case because Liverpool have started the season with two draws against Fulham, Crystal Palace, Manchester United, yes, are woeful, but they're at home, they've got a point to prove, and it is Liverpool. Been a lot of big upsets over the weekend too, which was what makes the English Premier League such a fascinating competition it's fascinating because anybody can beat anybody the game's incredibly well promoted and there are just so many narratives that are constantly going on the managers are as big as the biggest players they create headlines themselves They provide wonderful theatre. Ben. Yes, mate. Football. I love it. 
we're having trouble getting hold of Guy, is it? Is it just going through to his answer phone? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Oh. What's the time over there in the UK at the moment? 10 a.m. Is it 10? Yes. Is it only 10? Yes. Oh, okay. So I think I told him that we'd get hold of him at between 11 and 11.30. I thought it was two hours difference. It's only an hour. Yeah. Oh, that's my mistake. That's why we can't get hold of him, Ben. Oh, oh no. See, I think I'm getting confused because Spain and the rest of Europe's two hours ahead, isn't it? Well, England's not in Europe anymore, you've got to remember. No, no, but I'm saying when you go across that way yeah, and you get into France, Spain and stuff with the date line, it's two hours. Ah, get on your iPhone. Well, doc, Dr. Google's telling me it's 10.03 a.m. over there. Okay, so we'll come to him at 11. So should we do then, and I apologise because I've probably got football fans going, oh, where's the show? So we'll do that after 10 o'clock then. And so why don't we then do the Arch Jelly interview? That sounds like a perfect plan. So we take a break first and come back. No, we've had a lot of breaks, haven't we? We have. We did have a – I sort of didn't quite get the timing of the commercials right before 9 o'clock and you had a little bit of narrative and then you had a break. We had a break, a little bit of narrative, and then another break. So we don't want to have too many commercials. We want our commercials to have some impact anyway. We don't want them to be white noise. So, look, to bring some context to this, um, Arch Jelly – Long-time running coach of Sir John Walker. Do I need – is this already in the intro, isn't it? Uh, I believe the clip starts with the, the highlight of John Walker winning. Oh, okay. So do I need to provide any more background here? Probably not, eh? Okay, I'll t- you're the producer. You just tell me, Ben. If it sounds bad, we'll blame you. Oh, I wasn't that happy with the introduction here because when we did it live, we had a few technical issues. Anyway, I don't need to tell you that, do I? Hey, I think you'll really, really enjoy this interview. This is a guy who is 100 years old and was part of one of the greatest athletes in the history of this country. Settle back, enjoy this. Yes, that was Sir John Walker winning the Olympic Games gold in 1976. Well, for a long time, he was coached by an absolute icon of New Zealand athletics, Arch Jelly. Arch athletes over the years have claimed more than 80 national athletic titles and seven New Zealand records. Fifteen of those athletes that he coached represented New Zealand, winning four Commonwealth Games gold medals, and of course that famous moment in Montreal in 1976. He was also there, and it will be 47 years ago, 47 years ago tomorrow that Sir John Walker became the first athlete in history to break three minutes 50 for the mile. Arch Jelly is my guest. Arch Jelly turns 100 Tomorrow, Arch. Good afternoon. Welcome. Lovely to have you on the program. Hi. Um, when did you first meet Sir John? I think it was uh, out at Hobsonville. I was uh, organising uh, the uh, cross country races, and after the uh, uh, the young ones had run, this tall, lanky fellow came up and said, uh, uh, "I'm John Walker," and I said, "Oh yes." He said, I got beaten today. And I said, uh, well, that's what happens to most people in running. And he said, well, that's the first time I've ever been beaten in cross country. And I said, well, uh, how often do you train? And he said, uh, oh, I I don't train. I just race on Saturdays. And I said, well, the fellow who won it, uh, I think it was uh, McRae, I said, he's trained by Don McFarquhar, and he runs about 90 miles a week. But there we are. That's how I first met John. And when did that, and so how long after that did that relationship between you and uh, Sir John establish itself? Uh, I, 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 
there was a, a bit of a uh, I, I coached him for a while and then uh, I think there was a bit of a break and we lost contact and then in 1971 probably August or September he came to me and, and said look he said uh, I'm dead serious about the running now would you, would you, uh, uh, would you like to coach me and I, I agreed Did you realise just how much of a talent you had? Not at all I knew he was fairly good, but I mean, New Zealand had uh, a lot of, you know, fairly good. Yeah, I thought he was okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Archer, as I said, it's remarkable that you're turning 100 tomorrow, but in terms of your love of athletics, just going back a step, and in terms of you sort of getting into the coaching side of athletics, when did that all happen? I don't know. I better answer the other question first, I think, uh, a bit a better. Uh, on the first, uh, we started coaching. Uh, together in about uh, September, August or September. Then on the 1st of January, 1972, he re- went to Tauranga and uh, he'd done his training and somebody said, why don't you uh, run in the 800? And he said, oh, I haven't got my gear and I've done my training. But then right, they talked to him and it gave him a pair of uh, spikes and some gear and he ran and he defeated uh, Dick Quacks uh, in the 800 metres and did a PB. And uh, uh, in fairness to Dick, of course, that wasn't uh, Dick's uh, favourite distance, but he, he was still the top runner. So I was very impressed by that uh, uh, by that run of John's. And I wrote to the New Zealand selectors and said, look, we've got a, a new runner here. His name's John Walker. He's big, he's strong, he's fast, and I think uh, he's got the capacity to uh, erase the name of Peter Snell from the record book. Well, he didn't quite do that, but uh, uh, most of my words were fairly prophetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, remarkable. And I, and I want to continue talking about some of those milestones that you and Sir John had because they're arguably some of the greatest moments in the history of New Zealand sport. But, um, but yeah, like so, so your love of athletics, how did you sort of, what, what sort of pointed you towards athletics, say, over rugby or maybe some of those other more traditional sports? Oh, well, I, I played uh, uh, football and rugby at, at uh, high school, uh, but I was very small and very light, and uh, uh, I, I turned to uh, gymnastics, and, uh, and I did quite well at gymnastics. And uh, then I, le- I left school, and uh, uh, I was still doing gymnastics, but nothing else really. And somehow, in our, I was in the Bible class, Methodist Bible class, and uh, somebody said, why don't you run in our... Uh, uh, Bible class race and I said well I'm not in training uh, and they said oh well, have, have a go so I, I, I ran the race and it wasn't quite easy because I was uh, fitter than I thought because I used to uh, uh, walk or run everywhere and uh, uh, we had cable cars in Dunedin in those days and if I uh, uh, missed the cable car I'd, I'd run down to, uh, to work and usually beat the, beat the tram to the bottom of the hill so uh, I, I was just training without knowing it, really. Mm-hmm. And so that evolution from going from running yourself to deciding that you'd want to take, help take the guesswork out from some other runners and maybe sort of tend to focus a bit more on the coaching? You know, when I, when I, I came back from the Navy in, uh, in 1946 and I rejoined the Mornington Harrier Club uh, and... Uh, and I, I, I wasn't coaching anybody really, but I was sort of organising them to uh, try and become, you know, better runners and that sort of thing. And uh, that's when I first started, you know, helping other people in running. 
Mm-hmm. Not, not that I knew very much myself. Yeah, look, at that time there was a real um, revolution happening in New Zealand athletics. Arthur Lydiard coming along, maybe changing the way things had been done. Were you were you a, a bit of a Lydiard disciple, or did you have your own sort of philosophy on things? Well, I, I remember in those days, uh, most uh, most runners ran uh, uh, in the winter and cross country, and and either well, with me, I played either uh, uh, usually playing tennis or uh, in in the summer. And uh, uh, you know, we'd heard of it. I'd uh, always been interested in, in uh, distance running, and uh, I, I'd read about what Zappa Peck was doing and uh, Arthur Newton, and uh, and then we heard about this crazy guy from Auckland. His name was Arthur Lydiard, and he was asking his uh, track runners uh, to run 100 miles a week and to do a lot of it on the road. And we couldn't believe it. Uh, we thought it was you know crazy. But at any rate, when uh, Arthur's uh, athlete started to win everything, we had a change of heart. We realised that uh, that uh, Arthur had something uh, really big going for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, I joined the uh, uh, we shifted to Auckland in '57, and uh, I joined the Oaraka Club uh, in '59. 50, 50, uh, uh, that's right, and. Uh, and I was running in, in the fast take with Arthur and Helbert and Snell and all this sort of thing. And uh, uh, I remember I ran in the uh, Auckland. I was, I was getting on a bit then. I think I was 37 or, or nearly 38. And I ran in the uh, Auckland Champs. And uh, Arthur had uh, put me in the A-team for some reason. And then I, I finished 10th in the Auckland Senior Cross Country and uh, just behind Ray Puckett. But I was only the seventh Oaraka man home. Wow. And ahead of me, there mm. was Snell and and uh, Julian and Puckett and uh, 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 Helberg and uh, and a couple of other ones. And, of course, they were running 100 miles a week, and I was running about uh, 30 or 40 on a good week. And uh, so uh, it was fairly difficult. But mm. I, I thought then uh, at the time that... Uh, I was very impressed with Arthur's methods, and I thought, well, um, if Arthur can do that, well, I can have, I can have a, a bit of a go at doing something the same. Perhaps it was a bit bumptious, I don't know. But so that's when I decided I'd give it a real go, and I started uh, a systematic coaching in 1960. It is 14 minutes after one. My guest on the programme is Arch Jelly, uh, probably more well-known for being the coach of the great Sir John Walker for more than 20 years. Arch is on the programme because tomorrow he turns 100 years of age, which is a remarkable achievement in itself. Arch, the relationship between um, you and Sir John, was it, did it ever get sort of rough at points? Was, was he an easy athlete to coach? Oh, he was a fantastic athlete to coach. No, never. He was, uh, we, were, we were always uh, great friends, really, and... Uh, uh, you know, we, I coached him probably for about you know, about twenty years, and uh, he he was never. Uh, oh, I think he was late for training twice, but he was involved in some sort of traffic uh, accident at the time. No, he was he was great. To, uh, he was very also he was a very good judge of his own fitness. He, mm. he never kidded himself. He knew when he was right, and he knew when he was uh, not so good.
How long did it take you? How, how long did it take you to figure out what exactly worked for him? Because there's always that you know you always start out, I guess, with a bit of a template with any athlete when you first start coaching them, some pretty basic principles. But as you understand the athlete, you understand their physiology. Sometimes you do have to tweak. Did you have to tweak much in those early years? Oh, I followed Arthur's principles mainly, except I I didn't I didn't get. John to uh, do the uh, uh, bounding and that sort of thing, uh, but uh, he di- he did all sorts of other hill work. And uh, I remember uh, we were doing some hill running at the domain, and I was running with John, and uh, and uh, Gordon Perry was there. And I think it was, that was in 1973 or yeah, 1973. And uh, I remember uh, Gordon was you know rather outspoken. And he yelled out at us, you're wasting your time. Well, the next year, John ran, you know, broke a world record, but Phil uh, by uh, beat him to it, of course. And mm. uh, so uh, we weren't really wasting our time. No, I just want to go back to 1974 Christchurch um, Commonwealth Games and, of course, Philbert Bay, one of the great displays in the history of 1,500 metre running, running from the front, breaking that world record. Uh, Sir John going under the existing world record. Rod Dixon's favourite line, I run, you know, I run the fourth fastest time in history and I finished fifth or something. So um, that just gave the quality. Was that, was that the race that well and truly introduced John onto the world stage? I think so. The the year before that, he uh, uh, Dick Quacks and uh, Rod Dixon took uh, John to Europe and um, and got him into races. He he didn't have the performances to uh, uh, to uh, you know to get entered into the big races, but they uh, they pulled a few strings and got him in, and it was very good experience uh, for him really. Mm. But um, when he uh, when he came to uh, 1974 in that 1500 meter. He was he was a New Zealand 1500 meter champion, but he wasn't the favourite really. The favourite New Zealander was Rod Dixon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now remarkable runner too, Rod. Uh, 1975. It'll be 47 years tomorrow. The anniversary of uh, Sir John becoming the first athlete in history to break three minutes 50 for the mile. Did that in Gothenburg, which also happened to fall on your birthday. Were you in Gothenburg for that? No, I wasn't. No. no, Rod was, and Ivan uh, Agnew, they were there. No, I wasn't there, but uh, yes, it was, uh, uh, I think it was on August the 12th over there, but it was uh, it was the August the 13th here, really, so it was a very good uh, birthday present. Yeah, wonderful. And then from there, of course, 1976, that famous moment, and I say it's the greatest gold medal we've won because what a lot of people don't realise is that the 28 African nations boycotted the Olympics because the All Blacks touring South Africa. A lot of the um, countries didn't want New Zealand there, but because of Adidas's influence at the time, we were there. And so John, very much being the face of the New Zealand team, had to sort of absorb all of the controversy, uh, came in as the favourite, and then had to live up to that hype, which he did do. Um, what are your memories of that, that Olympics and the conversations or... Um, the discussions he's had with Sir John in terms of maybe keeping some clarity. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, it was very difficult with the pressure and that sort of thing. But we, uh, somebody said it. You know, it would have been easier if Byron was there. But but Talbot was. Uh, uh, he he was out of action. Really, I think he had malaria or something. And and uh, just a, a few months before John had run against him and sat in on him, and then 
beaten by about 20 or 30 metres, so we weren't really frightened of Vai. But uh, uh, John ran in the uh, 800 metre, he was entered in both, and, uh, and he was knocked out of, he was out sprinted in, the, in his heat, and so he, he didn't qualify for the uh, semi-final on the 800. Mm. And I remember that night, um, he was, uh, oh, the papers started to write him off uh, over there, and uh, they said to him, uh, John, were you, uh, uh, were you, you know, very disappointed at the uh, 800 metres uh, defeat? And uh, John said, well, not really, he said, but I was very disappointed about something else. And they said, what was that? He said, well, that evening, my coach beat me at snooker. <laughs> there you I go. was a he was a much superior player. I think he'd been watching too much pot black. Um <laughs> Yeah, I just um just want to sort of um also just go back and look at your time because it's remarkable. I mean, boy, you're just incredibly astute for a man who's about to turn a hundred. But look, you served with dignity in World War Two. Uh, first in New Zealand in the Scottish Regiment and then in the Navy. Um you were posted to England for your preliminary naval training. And after being on the Arctic convoy duty, supplying Russian bases on HMS Bermuda, you were commissioned as a sub-lieutenant and were posted as a gunnery officer on coastal submarines. I mean, what a remarkable life. I mean, do you have memories of that? How dangerous, how scary was that? And, And what impact did that have on you for the rest of your life in terms of, I don't know, negatives and positives? I, think I was only on one uh, Arctic or Rus- not allowed to call it Russian convoy now. I, uh, I was only one, and we, uh, uh, the convoy I was on, we were very fortunate because uh, it was very bad weather and it was misty, and uh, there were German U boats there and and uh, and Fokker Wolves and that sort of thing. But they they were hard, they weren't sighted really. We went to uh, we went. Uh, uh, to Iceland first and picked up the convoy and then uh, and round and uh, we there was uh, we were just lucky and it, it was in November December so it was tremendously cold but it wasn't cold where I was because I was down about three floors in the uh, control room, control room of uh, one of the uh, the uh, uh, gunneries and so uh, uh, the only cold I felt was when we went ashore at Kola. And uh, in all uh, wet weather gear, and it was a, a terrible place. We were glad when we left. And on the way back, we still had bad weather, bad visibility, so it wasn't too good for the uh, German uh, planes or the uh, German U boats. Mm, Twenty-two minutes so, up. But my 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 role in the my brother was over there in the fleet air arm too. But our role in World War Two was very very minor. 22 minutes after one, my guest on the program is Arch Jelly, the coach of the great Sir John Walker, a lot of other wonderful New Zealand athletes, the likes of Alison Wright, Hazel Stewart, Barbara Moore, Christine Fitzsinger. Uh, turns 100 tomorrow. He's my guest on the program. What are you doing for your birthday, Arch? Oh, we're having a bit of a do at Pinesong. About a few people coming in, about 120, I think. Mm. And then what, Oweraka are celebrating you on Sunday with 100 by one mile. Oh, that's right. Oh, we had a big celebration at the Bridge Club yesterday. Mm, fantastic. Hey, can I just quickly get your thoughts too? Because I mean, you know, Peter Snell. You go right back to you go right back to uh, Lovelock, and then you've got Halberg and Snell, and that inspires one generation. We've seen Sir John Rod 
um, the likes of Dick Quacks inspire the Nick Willis's of the world. Now we've got this young kid, Sam Tanner, coming through, running 3.31 as a 21-year-old. How, 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 how highly do you rate him? Oh, I that, to me, that was the highlight of the games. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Lovelock. I, I was, uh, in 1936, he came and spoke to uh, us at our uh, at Ob- Otago Boys High School, and uh, I remember him very well. Well, Arch, Jelly, uh, Arch, lovely to have you on the programme. Look, a big happy birthday from the entire athletics and sporting community. I mean, you are a part of two of the great moments in New Zealand sport. Your legacy with Sir John uh, will never be forgotten, mate. And uh, look, yeah, uh, look, I wish you all the best over the next 100 years, mate. You sound that young, Arch. Uh, not really. <laughs> en- enjoy your birthday tomorrow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs> 28 minutes after nine, Arch Jelly, 100 years of age. Remarkable how together he is at that age. Jack Lovelock wins an Olympic Games gold medal 1936, and he remembers Jack Lovelock coming and talking to him at school while he was at school. Was there to see Walker break 350 for the mile 1976. Gold medal. Uh, if you want to comment on that, if you have listened to it, I'd love to get some feedback. 0800 Where were you when John Walker won that Olympic Games gold in Montreal in 76? Gothenburg when he broke 350 for the mile in 1975? The Commonwealth Games in 1974 where he finishes second to the great Philbert Bay. Bay breaking the world record, Walker going under the existing world record at the time, or Dixon finishing fourth and running the fifth fastest time in history. These coaches that sometimes in the background that don't always get the recognition, the Steve Hansons get knighted. Why is Arch Jelly not knighted? Why was Arthur Lydiard not knighted? Why was some of the other great coaches in this country not being knighted? Duncan Lang, as an example. Coaching Daniel Loder. Why isn't Daniel Loder not knighted? Michael Jones is. Steve Hansen is, I'll say this right now, to win two Olympic Games gold medal in the pool is a hell of a lot harder achievement than coaching the All Blacks to success. I can tell you that right now. This is a country at the moment that's calling constantly for equality, sometimes at a ridiculous level, across the board, yet when it comes to certain things, don't practice it. Mark, good evening. Welcome. G'day, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Um, well, I must say, in some regards, uh, New Zealand's definitely doing better than Australia at the moment. I mean, the Blackburns really took it for the Wallaroos, 52-0 on the weekend, so the less said about that from an Australian sport-supporting point of view, the better. Yeah, but th- th- look, without being politically correct, the harsh reality is no one cares, mate. Well... 
I must say, with regard to women's sport here in Australia, we do care. And over here, at least, women's sport is really taking off, especially with regard to, like, the Wallaroos, AFLW, like the women's um, Aussie rules. Yeah, yeah okay. But um, are they getting... Are they, okay, let's just take Australian Aussie rules. Look, I've I, I, look, I got no problem. I'm hoping the sport does take off. I'm pleased that there are pathways now for girls into what have been predominantly male bastions. I, I just yep. get a little bit annoyed here that... Um, because of the political environment, the importance of some of these sports have become manufactured. And I'd rather just these sports organically grow and let interest in them naturally develop rather than being told how important they are um, by those that sit on the far, far left politically. Oh, I agree. I agree. Um, and I think with regard to New Zealand Rugby Union especially, I think whoever's in charge on the board needs to just um, take a quick trip out the door and not come back because, in my opinion, in the New Zealand Rugby Union administrative ranks, they've got too many bean counters and too many bureaucrats and not enough people have actually played the game who are familiar with the game and who care about the game. Yeah, but I think also, too, They've got caught up in this becoming a business, which it is to a degree, but for actually forgetting the responsibility of why they're in existence, and that is for the greater good and the governance of rugby. And that's not just one form of rugby, that's right across the board. And I'm not sure, Mark, if you're listening earlier, I think when I saw the Auckland MPC side get beaten by Bay of Plenty, well done to Bay of Plenty, and I'm thinking to myself, man, these are the best players from Auckland Club Rugby, then Auckland Club Rugby's in, world tr- in real trouble. And then you see Wellington losing, yeah. who have a big club competition. You see Canterbury yeah. losing, who have a really big club competition. And you're saying that really, forget worrying about who your all-black coach is, forget worrying about who your all-black captain is, forget worrying about which players are going to stay and which players are going to go. The biggest concern right now is making sure that club rugby is strong. That's where oh, the emphasis should be, and that is where... Um, the panic lights should be ringing loudest at the moment. I I agree with you totally. I mean, thank goodness here in Sydney, at least, our club rugby scene is uh, a strong one. So we've got good pathways, especially through the Waratahs and club rugby here in Sydney for players to develop organically. And uh, on the uh, NPC competition side of things, I was a bit disappointed to see the Tasman, my team, lost, but... uh, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. I regard the NPC game as uh, fundamental to the development of New Zealand rugby. They should put more resources into it and concentrate, or perhaps reconcentrate and refocus on making the NPC a development, a solid development stage toward uh, nurturing future All Blacks and developing. Yeah, but you've got to have your club rugby competition. Um, the, the step below that, you know, we've placed so much emphasis on school schoolboy rugby now that um, who needs club rugby? That's almost the mentality. If I've made it at school, I'm going to go on and make it. And I yep. disagree with that. And I think, as we said earlier, let's take, let's get Sky Television if you're New Zealand rugby and say, look, as our as our um, broadcast partner, we love the fact what you've done with school rugby. It was done with the best intentions, but look, this is what's actually come out of it. Uh, and it's not a good thing. And so we, as part of the agreement, we don't want you broadcasting schoolboy rugby anymore. If schools want to do that through live streaming themselves, good luck to them. But we really want you to focus now on club rugby across the country and we want to put a national club competition in place. We want that to be the stepping stone. We want people to come through school who maybe haven't developed physically 
uh, who develop physically later than other kids to say, you know what, okay, I didn't make the first 15 or when I was in the first 15, I was a little bit small, but I know that senior club rugby is still my pathway. Absolutely. And on a lighter note, I was very impressed with uh, the interview you did with that guy, Arch, just before. Yeah. Uh, That was total class. And, um, yeah, I, was, I only caught the tail end of it, but I was very impressed. So well done with that. Yeah, now go back and um, we'll put it up. We might already have it up on Twitter. Um, but, yeah, Arch Jelly, try and listen to the whole thing. 100 years of age, remarkable. Oh, yeah. Didn't totally. sound and like I mean, he was 100, did he? No, heck no. And no. I reckon someone like him is a real titan in New Zealand sport, like someone like Jeremy Coney, because I had the big pleasure of um, talking to him on a over the phone on a New Zealand uh, trip he did to England, I believe, and the New Zealand cricket team was taking on England. And he was doing commentary for it, and I reminded him of a funny story I read uh, where in the seventies he was touring in England and uh, with the New Zealand cricket team, and he was wearing in those days your typical kind of um, hippie get-up, you know, like torn mm-hmm. t-shirt, torn jeans, big dot boots, and uh, had his acoustic guitar with him. And the team manager gave him 50 pounds and said, go down to Savile Road, buy yourself a new suit and wardrobe and smarten yourself up. So then um, he comes back at the end of the day and he's still wearing the same ripped T-shirt, ripped jeans, dock boots and uh, no suit. And the manager's like, what happened? And he went out and used the money to buy himself a new guitar. Brilliant, brilliant. Love it, Mark. Hey, thank you. Thank, okay, you. No Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Cheers. Love it. 27. Yeah, good good man, Jeremy Coney. Good man. Wonderful orator. Uh, 23 minutes away from 10 texts that's come in. The, uh, this is in regards to rugby league and maybe some comments we were making before 9 o'clock in regards to maybe why rugby league and why development in this country is not where it's at and what's happened to the coaches when it comes to rugby league in this country, particularly at a junior level. And this person's text in Vaughan, in fact, the All Blacks are so revered in this country and the world, so the development and infrastructure of the game of rugby league is at a huge disadvantage from the start. Add in the fact first 15 rugby is a real stepping stone to the next level. Then add in the fact maybe 20% of those schools may put a league team into a random one-off tournament. You really start to understand why the development isn't there for the players and the coaches and even the administration. Hence, they go to Australia and gain the tools and knowledge from there. I'm sure kids want to dabble, but the powers that be just don't allow the opportunity. Yeah, but I sort of agree, Vaughan. Um, But rugby league, it's always been that. I think they still get a lot more coverage and a lot more publicity than a lot of other sports. I mean, if you want to be a successful rower, you can be a successful rower in this country. Um, And you've still got, you know, rugby there in the background. Uh, that you've got to go up against in terms of talent, in terms of trying to steer players away from that game and trying to get them into your sport. I think part of the big problem here with rugby league is I think it's just been poorly administered for a long, long time. Develop and put money into infrastructure and put money into coaching, and the rest will sort itself out. But Vaughan, appreciate the text. Really good. Thank you. 21 minutes away from 10. It's been a nice eclectic mix of music throughout the evening. Now, after 10 o'clock, I've got my times wrong. Guy McRae from the UK, you know, that little rap tune, Guy McRae from the UK, um, is going to join us on the program. Uh, wonderful uh, sports broadcaster. Loves Tottenham Hotspur. His depth of English Premier League football is almost second to none. We will preview Liverpool-Manchester United being played tomorrow morning, I think 7 o'clock New Zealand time. 
um, and also what has been just a weekend of upsets after only three rounds of the English Premier League. Uh, Craig is texting. Agree. Why don't New Zealand rugby should be uh, should be toast, sack people, and clean it out? If New Zealand lose to Argentina with the Bledisloe Cup, what then? Craig and Todong, a great show. Hey, Craig. Yeah, now I wanted to talk to you about this. Oh, I haven't had a really a conversation. I had an opportunity since Ian Foster was reappointed. I'm pleased for Ian Foster and Ian Foster's mental health um, because he can't have been doing it easy. But I don't agree with the decision. I never agreed on his appointment from the start. The problem with now having said that we back him through to the World Cup We've got to be careful that we're not saying it's okay now to experiment. Let's play around with our players. Let's bring some youthful ones in. Let's play around with our front rowers. And if we lose some tests, so be it. Because it's all about the World Cup. We can't allow that to happen. We cannot accept losses to Argentina. We cannot accept losses to Australia. We cannot accept losses on the end of the year tour all in the name of the World Cup. Because if we do that, we officially reduce rugby to once every four years. We bastardise and we cheapen the all-black brand. And if Ian Foster should lose a test to Argentina, then the cries should be just as loud for his head and the cries should be just as loud for the heads of those board members that came to this decision. You would have heard me say this about 400 times on this radio station. You cannot kill club rugby. You cannot diminish the NPC, which they've done to both. You cannot... bastardise and ruin Super Rugby, which they've done, all in the name of the All Blacks, and then suddenly tell us it's okay for the All Blacks to lose as well. Because you've officially then got nothing left. We don't have much left now. But Hanson and Chu got away with it because the All Blacks predominantly won probably up until about 2017. And then things started to go off the rails. I made a statement earlier too, and I just want to maybe see if we can get some talk. I, I You know, um, what's his name? Um, sorry, who, who was our caller out of Australia? Mark. Oh, Mark, yeah. Sorry, Mark. Um, just having a mental block. Saying that he really enjoyed watching the New Zealand women's team beat Australia. Um How many people would have jumped on the talkback lines and been upset if the women's rugby team had lost? Would have nation have mourned? Was that appointment viewing on Saturday night? If you had a party to go to, that was important, but not the end of the world if you didn't turn up. Would you have not gone to the party because you wanted to watch that women's test match. I'm just trying to get a gauge on just how important this is. 
I don't want the left-wing media telling me how important it is. I actually want to know how important it is. And there's a fundamental difference between the two. Oh, 800 150 is the number. You can text us here on double eight double three. I love that song. Um, it actually takes me back to the Hawaiian Ironman. 1993 Ironman Triathlon World Championships in Kona. First time up there. And I went to the prize giving and they had done the slideshow, which was quite innovative at the time. Nothing compared to what you can do now, clearly. Um, and they had this as the... Um, soundtrack to it Aerosmith's Dream On and I was a big Aerosmith fan anyway so I've never forgotten that actually still listen to this song a lot Get Your Wings album Toys in the Attic another great album Rocks another great album in fact Rocks 1976 I think was um, Slash from Guns N' Roses favourite album alongside Led Zeppelin 2 anyway just doing a little bit of rock um Yeah, coming up after 10 o'clock, Guy McRae, we will talk English Premier League football. Uh, Manchester City drawing three all with Newcastle. Leeds beating Chelsea 3-0. Arsenal having a win. Spurs having a win. You can never pick it. Crystal Palace beating Aston Villa. How much pressure is former Liverpool great Steven Gerrard under? Is he under pressure? West Ham. Haven't won a game so far. Yet last year, we're challenging for much of the season for a top four finish. What has gone wrong at West Ham? If you've got any questions that you want to ask Guy, uh, feel free to text them in here on double eight double three. Can you get him to get, give his thoughts on uh, the mighty Bradford City? Mighty Bradford City. We can ask about Bradford City. What league are Bradford City in these days? Championship? No. First division? No. Second division? Yes. Yes, they got promoted, didn't they? They won 6 or 7 nil in the last game of the season, didn't they? Uh, no, I don't, was not. The fourth division, I can't remember who that was. But was it Bradford City? I thought it was Bradford City. No, nah, Bradford have been uh, mid-table mediocrity in the, in the league. But at least you like division. a team for genuine reasons, mate. I mean, I get accused a lot of being a bit of a populist, but I've got to say, look, I supported Liverpool since I was about five or six. Mum will tell you that, for whatever reason, stuck with them through the good times and the bad times. But boy, fascinating season. We need to beat Manchester United in the morning. And City dropping points. Suddenly Liverpool, if they can get the victory, those first two draws, well... They're back in the game, aren't they? Even though it'll only be three games of 38. Such is the closeness of this remarkable competition. Wouldn't it be great to have the MPC back at that sort of level? Northland being able to wander in and beat an Auckland side. All the All Blacks playing, no super rugby. Senior club rugby strong. Schoolboy rugby strong. Got a feeling All Black rugby would be strong. Four and a half minutes away from 10 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. We'll take plenty of movement in there. On by Perisic. And Kane is there! The breakthrough at last! The greatest one-season wonder in Premier League history has done it again! 
It was so good, we wanted to play that goal twice. Not sure quite what happened there in the edit. Anyway, we are talking English Premier League football. Guy McRae, outstanding broadcaster out of the UK, who is a big Spurs fan, joins us on the programme now to talk all things English Premier League. Guy McRae, good evening, welcome. Hey, Mark. Good to hear from you and everything. Good to speak to you again. First time, I think, this season in the new, uh, new EPL season for us. So, uh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Let's talk about your mob. 1-0 over Wolves, but I think it's probably fair to say Wolves probably deserved a point, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was at the game for um, first time this season. I couldn't get to the Southampton game with uh, working at the Commonwealth Games. But uh, yeah, I was there. Mark it's, Mark, it's difficult. Those fixtures, those 12.30 kickoffs, uh, I'd say, first of all, something's got to be done about this from an from a entertainment perspective, from a fan perspective. It's just difficult all round. And I, I, I make that point because I think it affected the game uh, a little bit. I think it affected Spurs a lot in the first half. You're right. Uh, Wolves were, as they always are, very well drilled, very tactically uh, astute in the first half, restricted Spurs, you know, that amazing front three uh, that Spurs have got of Kane, Son and Kulisewski to not very much. Um, Second half was a little bit different, though. Um, Overall, I I think Spurs started to move through the gears a little bit more. It's an interesting one, though, because I think three games into the season, the the consensus here in uh, in and around London, in the UK, is with this Spurs team, it hasn't really got completely going on all cylinders yet. And for all that, it's still two wins and the last-minute draw at Chelsea as well at the same time. So maybe that's a good thing for Spurs, mm-hmm. that they're not absolutely firing yet, yet are still seven points out of nine. Yeah, I'll get you just, for our listeners out there, just to give us a little bit of an update on the transfer window over the summer, what players Spurs mm-hmm. recruited and how those recruits have performed so far for Spurs and what impact they have had on the team. Yeah, it's a really good point. A lot of discussion around that, around Spurs fans on Saturday, uh, because actually if you look at the Spurs team, I mean, we'll go on to talk about other Premier League teams, how they started the season. If you look at the Spurs team, it's the same team uh, from last season that uh, memorably, of course, uh, went past Arsenal and sealed fourth in the Premier League to get into the Champions League this season. In terms of the new signings, you still get that feeling Antonio Conte's trying to integrate them in, into what was a very successful team at the end of last season. And the guy that uh, your listeners will know quite a bit about following European football and everything else, uh, who really started to shine in the last couple of games, uh, is the signing who's had the impact, predictably, is Ivan Perisic, uh, the Croatian Absolutely superb. Spurs' best player on Saturday, uh, of course, created. It was his corner that created the last-minute equaliser for Harry Kane at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea as well. Uh, So he's starting to shine. He's coming in. It's going to be interesting with Spurs over the coming weeks. When we get the return of the UEFA Champions League, we then go to Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. At the moment, they're playing one game a week. So Conte can play his established first eleven, But we're going to see these signings, I think, from Spurs come into full force in the coming weeks when you've got those Champions League games. So then you get a Eve Bissouma, who was signed from Brighton, for example, uh, coming in there. Uh, the fullback as well, Jed Spence, who was signed from Middlesbrough, a young talent. Can these guys start to force their way in? Notably, the guy I've completely forgotten to mention as well is Richarlison, 
who was signed from Everton, who at the moment has been having very good impacts on these opening few fixtures. But he's going to play as well in the coming weeks. He's huge, potentially, for Spurs. Established Premier League uh, forward was so important, of course, in keeping Everton up last season. Uh, it's going to be massive, that, to see how Conte can integrate players in uh, in these coming weeks, because he's going to have to. That was the criticism of Spurs last season. There wasn't enough rotation. Well, Conte said, I haven't got the bench options. He does now. So let's kind of watch that space over the coming weeks see how he brings these new signings into the team in the matches to come. You weren't a Richarlison fan. Have you changed your mind? <laughs> Mark, you're always good with all the questions here. It's an interesting one. Um, with three matches in, what I would say uh, is that in this season, of the five subs permanently through the season, and of course, as we all know, with the World Cup break coming in, with Spurs trying to attack on all those fronts, Maybe I've been a, a little bit short-sighted about this. Maybe actually this is the signing that Spurs need. You've got the established Brazilian centre-forward there, someone who, as I say, has got Premier League proven experience, albeit with Everton, not at the level of Spurs, of course, Everton, but someone who knows the Premier League. And crucially, Mark, someone who can play across those front three positions uh, for Spurs as well. So if you're looking to rest Son Heung-min, you're looking to set rest uh, Dejan Kulisewski or you're looking to rest Harry Kane uh, for a match, he could come in and play any of those positions. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm starting to just soften on that a bit. I would say as well, the fans have taken to him immediately. That was my impression. Obviously, I'm, I'm there in the home end in the South Stand at Spurs. You can tell when he comes on, he gets people standing up because of his effort, uh, commitment and his quality as well. So, yeah, maybe maybe I was wrong on that one initially. He could have a big role to play this season for Spurs. I want to talk about Aston Villa. One win out of three, um, beaten 3-0 by Crystal Palace over the weekend. How much pressure is Steven Gerrard under? Is he under pressure? I, I think so, Mark. Uh, it's the nature of the English Premier League. Um, money's been spent there. Uh, obviously, there's the wider narrative. Let's not forget that with Steven Gerrard... Oh, this is an opportunity for him over the next couple of years. Should two or three years' time Jurgen Klopp leave Liverpool? Kind of assumed that this was going to be a big role for him as an audition, in a sense, to see could he cut it at Anfield in the future. Well, it's not working uh, at the moment, by all accounts. Um, there's a lot of talent in that Villa team. Uh, but what we've seen so far this season from them, just strange, strange performances. Uh, you know, Crystal Palace played well. Uh, at the weekend, but you go a goal up there early on, Ollie Watkins put them in front, and then just seem to stop playing, uh, which was bizarre, really. That's, I think, the main criticism of Gerrard's team at the moment is, what's the identity? You know, it's something we've talked about quite a bit when Spurs have had their ups and downs. You've asked me about this. What do you want as a fan, ultimately, with a team? You want evidence of a style of play, of an identity, of the way you're going to approach matches. And I think that's the problem with Aston Villa at the moment is their fans are going, OK, well, how are we actually, we've got all these players, how are we actually approaching these games? They're not really sure. I think that's a, you know, a big part of the problem. Mm. Now, I'm going to bring up the team that's top of the table at the moment and you hate them with an absolute <laughs> passion, Arsenal. <laughs> you hate them with an absolute passion, but... In the yep. first game of the season, beating Crystal Palace 2-0, then beating Leicester City 4-2, then a 3-0 win against Bournemouth. Are they the real deal, or are they just a team like so many teams that start the English Premier League season off with a bit of a hiss and a roar, only to start to fade once they pick up a few injuries? 
I was waiting for this question above all. Um, I thought this one might have been coming. Uh, <laughs> they started well. Um, I think that, that there hurt, are a few that hurts you, doesn't it? That hurts you to say that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's fair. I, I think what we need to—I think we need to get a bit of perspective. Guna fans, I think, are going completely overboard. It says a lot about their football club and where they're at and what they've experienced in the past few years of mediocrity. Um, I think that they're going completely overboard after three wins. I think it's a good start to the season. I think we need a bit of context here. Spurs won their, uh, their first three games of last season under Nuno Espirito Santo, and then we know where that went over the next couple of months. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Arsenal. I think they're in a better place than uh, Santo's Spurs were, uh, for instance, last season, after the, even after those first three wins. I think they've strengthened very knowledgeably. Uh, the, the two that they signed from Man City are fantastic players uh, in Alexander Sinjenko and Gabriel Jesus. You've seen that in the first three games. I think they've got their first team fit and available for Mikel Arteta, which is important. Not a lot of talk around this, but I think from following the Premier League, Thomas Partey is absolutely massive for Arsenal. If he gets injured at any point in the season, I don't really, I think that weakens them. I don't really see a like-for-like replacement um, overall. I think they'd be weaker for that. And obviously with Jesus, you know, the, the impact that he's made has been incredible. It's been really interesting, Mark, to see him because this is a guy who was obviously involved uh, in Manchester City's English Premier League title wins. But he was always seen wasn't he, as a bit of a bit part player. He was never, you know, even when Pep Guardiola... They said there's no number nine, no out-and-out centre-forward. He never seemed to play, not like Erling Braut Haaland is now playing all the time. You know, the established has come in, this killer centre-forward. Um, Jesus is revelling already in that, but he knows he's going to play every week. He's clearly got ability. He's talented. Zinchenko brings that experience as well. I think for Arsenal, watch this space again on them. It's a good start to the season. With respect to the teams they've beaten, that's good. It's good for top four. Uh, overall to have got those wins, as you say, over away at Palace is a good one to beat Leicester and then win at Bournemouth, albeit newly promoted. But it's three wins. Let's see overall. I think this is going to be this is going to be a weird season. I mean, we've said that before, haven't we, with the COVID seasons, how uh, unusual they've been. But this season, we've got this start, then we've got this seven-week break for the FIFA World Cup, and then we come back again overall from there with all the impact potentially of that. There's a lot that's going on here. And I just hold on Arsenal a little bit at the moment. For all that the start is great for them, the first three games, they haven't played any of those, the rest of their top six rivals yet. And we all know what happened, for instance, in May when Spurs absolutely smashed them uh, overall to take fourth from them uh, on, on the way to that. So hey, hey, guy, it's so, a good sorry, start. Just, it's just, a good start. Just, it's a good start, but let, let's uh, not go overboard. Yeah, just remind me, what was the score in that Arsenal-Spurs game from last season? Uh, which one? The second one, the one that mattered. Three nil. Three nil. No, just, just yeah. Sorry, I, I just yeah, just yeah. It, that, oh no, no. I, 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 I greatly said... appreciate you reminding everyone no, of it. No, it was, no, uh, no. I was going to play. No, no, no. I was going to play, and, gonna play and, a little bit think... of sort of. I was going to play some lovely little sort of you know love songs to midnight underneath it as you said it, mate. Because you said it with such beauty. You said it with such beauty, guy. Hey, um. Thomas Tuchel, <laughs> another uh, another manager that Spurs fans just absolutely love. Where are Chelsea? Where are the plastics at? Getting beaten three 0 by Leeds on the weekend. Who picked that? Yeah, I know who picked that. I mean, it's the first time, isn't it, in twenty years that Leeds have beaten Chelsea in the in the Premier League. Uh, they were fantastic. Let's not take anything. You know, we need to focus on that Jesse Marsh. There's been a lot of 
the American coach. There's been a lot of uh, talk around, is he up to the job? But he started, Leeds have actually started the season very well. You know, word for them. But Chelsea, naturally, a lot of focus falls um, on them. They've spent £170 million over the summer uh, on players. That impression, that transfer window, though, wasn't really... You look at Spurs, you look at Arsenal, that there was... There was uh, clarity in terms of who they were looking to sign as well. That there was, it was part of a plan. You don't really get that with Chelsea overall. Todd Bowley's come in, obviously the big takeover, taking over from Roman Abramovich there. It's disrupted things. It doesn't seem a very clearly thought-out transfer window. Raheem Sterling's come in, obviously a very good player. Kaladu Kulibaly as well. He got sent off uh, yesterday. He was good against Spurs. The thing is, these players... For all that, Mark, I'm looking at that and going, they haven't replaced Romelu Lukaku. They don't have a number nine. I mean, you, you look at the rest of the top six, their top six rivals. Mentioned Haaland with City. Darwin Nunes, of course, got a red card last time out, but he's going to be the number nine overall for Liverpool as well. Looks a fantastic player. Um, Spurs, Harry Kane, best forward in Europe, uh, in my opinion. Arsenal, Jesus. Who's, who's coming, we've talked about already. But Chelsea, you've got Raheem Sterling there playing at Leeds. Not really a centre-forward. He kind of comes in from wide positions. And you think for a club of that stature, not to, why didn't they sign Gabriel Jesus? You know, that, that's the problem. And I think that's going to continue to hurt them. Uh, is Koulibaly, for all his ability, is he really the top-line uh, central defender that Chelsea were looking for to replace Antonio Rudiger? be gone to Real Madrid. That's the thing. It's just little fault lines here in their approach, which I think is going to hurt Thomas Tuchel um, going forward. And it particularly, Mark, it gives real interest to both Arsenal and Spurs over the course of the season. Because if you think Man City are a lock for the top four, are people's favourites to win the Premier League again, you think also that Liverpool are going to be in the top four at the end of it, are too good a team to be missing out on that, even if maybe over the course of the season trying to win the Premier League again is too much and they're going to be in the top four. That leaves two spots. Well, historically, Chelsea have taken one of those spots over the last few years. But I think both Arsenal and Spurs, we talked about both of them at length, are thinking over the season, we can knock our London rivals out of the top four here. They're not quite at it like we are. Um, So I do think it's concerning for Chelsea. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the remainder of the transfer window for them, whether they address some of the points I've talked about, notably the need for a number nine, the need for a striker. They're being linked with, with Wesley Fofana from Leicester as a centre-back. Good player. Is he any better than Koulibaly? Is he as good as Rudiger? He's not as good as Rudiger. Um, so they're focusing a lot of attention. They're talking a £70 million deal for him. But I'd be saying if they've got that money available, they need to be going after a centre-forward because that, for me, is going to be their biggest problem uh, over the course of the season for Chelsea. 15 and a half minutes after 10, you're listening to SENZ. Feel free to text us here on the programme, 8833. Guy McRae is my guest on the programme. We're talking all things English Premier League. Newcastle, Eddie Howe. How good a manager is he? And a Newcastle, potentially that team that could determine the outcome of the English Premier League outside of those big established clubs? Yeah, it's, this is a really good one. I mean, I've, I've rated um, Eddie Howe for a long time. Uh, when Spurs were going through managers before they've got now Antonio Conte there, I was talking about getting Eddie Howe in uh, at the lane as well for Spurs. 
a really smart young manager who thinks at things differently. He talked about it uh, in terms of the match against Manchester City, how he had to approach it, about taking risk, about tactically how they looked at it. They're interesting, Newcastle, because there, there was a common consensus when they had the takeover. They were just going to go and splash money regardless and just get everyone. I mean, there was a talk about, there was talk about getting Haaland in, about Mbappe, everyone else, the biggest names in, in world football in terms of uh, managers as well. But they're smart so far, I think, because what they've done, you look at their recruitment, Eddie Howe's come in, a man who knows the Premier League, a younger English manager. And then you look at the players. They've got an English core through that team. Uh, overall, players who know the Premier League. Um, and adding to the talent that they already had, they definitely are a bit of a spoiler this season. I don't think they're strong enough yet to... We talked about top four. I don't think over the season they've got quite enough yet, although clearly in seasons to come, they are going to be a contender for top four and a lot more with the, uh, the financial resources that they've got. Um, in terms of top six or top seven, definitely. I think what we saw against Manchester City, this early contender for Premier League game of the season... Uh, was Eddie Howe's influence, the mixture, the blend that they've got, and then you've got this X factor of, okay, what could they do in January? Who, who could they bring in? And they've got that fan base up there as well. Everyone knows how difficult St. James's Park is to go to as well uh, to try and get a result. They just asked Arsenal back in May when, when they, were, you know, they were never in that match against them. That ultimately cost them the fourth place. Um, so they are really interesting this season, Newcastle. I think they also summarise, Mark, uh, where the English Premier League is at, why I think people love the Premier League. It's not just the tribalism and the passion of it. It's also the fact that you look at the teams, you look at any weekend, you talked about some of those results already, Leeds against Chelsea. How many leagues, how many of the top European leagues do you get that number of results, those sorts of performances uh, overall, where the champions for the past five years in Manchester City go up there to Newcastle and, frankly, have done very well to draw three-all uh, in that game, came from 3-1 down. It's an extremely competitive league. Yes, Man City have dominated along with Liverpool at the top end, but I think the, one of the reasons people love the English Premier League so much is you look at the fixtures any weekend, even a team from lower down, if they raise their level, they can win the match. They believe that, and that's what we've seen uh, again in these times a few games of the season. Another one of, I guess, the big news stories is West Ham. Haven't won a game, sitting second to bottom on the English Premier League. Uh, mm-hmm. David Moyes, highly respected, but I'd imagine if this continues, the knives will come out. Didn't do a lot in terms of the transfer window. Still a couple more weeks remaining. Not a lot of support there for Declan Rice. What do you make of West Ham? Sorry for them as a Spurs fan to see what they're going through. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's uh, it, it's for them strange performances. They were at it in their in their Europa Conference League game in the week, but in the Premier League where it really matters so far, strange as you suggest, kind of levels of performance really lethargic. Not really performances that they produced under David Moyes, particularly at home. Um, they're a weird one um, uh, overall looking at them because you look at their team, they've got, they've got plenty of quality. Jared Bowen hasn't really, I know he got a goal in the European game in the week, but in the opening Premier League games, he's not really fired. He was clearly very important for them. He's been important for them the last couple of years. Mikel Antonio, not really added in the Premier League. And the big thing, Mark, is with David Moyes' teams, you look at them defensively in terms of their back four. He doesn't really rotate. 
You look at back four for them, which, which is the bedrock of any team, their successes, but for West Ham, no different. It's, it's vulnerable uh, at the moment. And Brighton, a very well-drilled, organized team with, with enough creativity. Danny Welbeck was there, Leandro Trossard, all of them going at, at West Ham. And whereas West Ham normally would be more solid at dealing with that sort of threat, you never got that impression. Uh, mm-hmm. against Brighton. So I think Moyes has got a lot to work out. It's a, I'm not really sure I've got an answer to that. You know, you look at them, it, it is only three games in, but the fundamentals of how Moyes has built that team to be a top seven, top eight team and, and be there just aren't there in the first few games. They're, they're giving away goals and they don't really, their key attacking players are not really at it yet either. They're playing with a kind of a lethargy as well. So, yeah, we'll have to see how they how they go uh, over the mm-hmm. coming weeks. But clearly, any team that starts a season in that way, uh, the way they've done at the bottom of the Premier League, is going to come under pressure because this is the ultimate results league. Uh, as we know, any manager, however well they've done, and Moyes has done very, very well at West Ham, you start losing a run of fixtures with the media, with the pressure, with just, just interest around the league well, uh, in the UK and worldwide. It's uh, it's going to grow on you, that pressure. Yeah, and I tell you what, it's mouth-watering because I think it's West Ham Aston Villa this weekend. So, Stephen Gerrard and David <laughs> Moyes. Now, look, before we let you go, let's preview the game that takes place about 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, New Zealand time. It's Manchester United at home to Liverpool, the greatest rivalry in English Premier League football, or certainly perceived by the rest of the world anyway. Uh, might not be quite as mm. big as Spurs Arsenal, but we can have that debate another time there, Guy. Um, I mean, everybody's expecting Liverpool to get the job done, but is it harder for Liverpool because of the rivalry to go and win? Mm, I feel I should be asking you the questions here, Mark. <laughs> for all on this one. Yeah, but I won't be impartial. Yeah, but I'm not impartial on Spurs either. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no this, this is the biggest game uh, overall I think in terms of fan bases and interest in the world I actually would argue that this is the biggest game in world for, in, in club well, football it's, uh, 500, it's, 500, it's 500 million worldwide minimum and I said that earlier tonight yeah. on the program this is arguably the biggest single sporting event annually in the world twice yeah. a year yeah, twice I, I, a year. I mean I, I yeah yeah I, I go along with that I mean it's huge tonight it's particularly interesting tonight this one for me uh because as you say, Liverpool in recent years, much the stronger team, have been winning trophies. Man United haven't been doing any of that since 2017. You know, they're well short of it, well off. Um, but the starts to the season that the two have made, I mean, we look at them respectively here. You know, Liverpool, after, you know, you look at those five years, they've won a Premier League, but the other two, two of the other seasons losing out by one point, that was all to Manchester City. So with the bar that City you know, set there, they're thinking, OK, first two games is, you know, Fulham and Palace. We've got to get six points here. Well, they only have two. So already the pressure's building on them. That's not the sort of start that you associate with Liverpool to a Premier League season. Normally, Klopp gets them. I mean, they go out and just, as you know, Mark, go and absolutely steamroller teams to begin the season. That hasn't really happened for a number of reasons. Um, United, well, we all know with them, Eric Ten Hag, even for you, Mark, you've got to feel a little bit sorry, I suppose, for Ten Hagi. He's come in, trying to wipe the slate clean. Doesn't really, I feel, get backed by the Man United board in terms of transfer policy. We know what's been going on with Frankie de Jong with Barcelona. I think there's also a bit of that as well. De Jong doesn't, doesn't really want to go to Man United, which I think is a problem they've got right now. They still think we're Man United under Sir Alex Ferguson. We're a huge club, biggest club in the world they build themselves. 
doesn't seem like the top players really want to go there anymore at the moment. And there's reasons for that. No Champions League football, no trophy since 2017. They might be a huge club paying big wages, uh, but they're not quite at it overall. And then you have this Cristiano Ronaldo saga hanging over Ten Hag as well, where he wants to wipe the slate clean, move forward. And then Ronaldo, is he going? Is he not right the way through here for just over another week to the end of the transfer window? So this is fascinating because... You've got two teams for different reasons. The biggest game in the Premier League in, uh, to the world in terms of the English Premier League and its spectacle. But you've got two teams for different reasons who really, really need a win tonight. Uh, you know, overall, they really, really do. Liverpool need to get that first win, get the, what they'll hope will be the title push going. They need to get that into here. And United just need something here. Um, Ten Hag's come in. He's lost a couple of matches. Again, come back to that theme with the Premier League of a results business. We've seen managers dispensed with pretty quickly. I'm not saying, again, that's going to happen to him here. He's only had a couple of games. But Man United, it's a huge, whatever that I say, okay, they're not what they were. They're a massive club overall, as we know in terms of the interest. As you say, you know, in New Zealand, throughout New Zealand, think about who's going to be watching this game, you know, tonight. All around the world, they're going to be watching this, thinking, can Man United get this together? There's been no... Uh, real semblance of how Ten Hag wants them to play so far. They've been extremely poor in their first two matches. They have the home advantage tonight. Uh, Liverpool go there. I think the final thing to say, Mark, on this is, as you say, we last season, Liverpool won easily. Memorably, 5-0 there at Old Trafford, then win 4-0 at Anfield. Is it going to be that one-sided? You can't believe it's going to be as one-sided as that tonight. United in front of their own fans. Liverpool over the years as well. I know they won handily last season, but Liverpool have struggled there a little bit, as you'll know, over the years. Even when they've come in as the favourite, United can get a draw against them or turn up, really, really deliver a performance. So that's going to be the fascinating thing tonight. Can United, with no real established form run into this, nothing suggesting that they're going to get something out of this game in front of their home fans. Can they upset Liverpool? Liverpool needing that win, the pressure starting to build on them. It's going to be really interesting tonight to see which of those two massive get their first Premier League win of the season. Guy McRae, lovely to have you on the programme. Hey, sorry, I was just just forgot. What was the score again between Spurs and Arsenal towards the end of last season? Was it 3 0? 12th of May 2022. It? Yeah, it's Tottenham Hotspur 3, Arsenal now. Oh, you're a beautiful, yeah. you're a beautiful uh, man, Guy McCray. Extremely you're, memorable. <laughs> you're, in a very platonic way, you're a beautiful man. Lovely to have you on the programme, Guy. Look, enjoy Liverpool United. Well done on your Spurs team so far this season. Brilliant. Speak to you next time, Mark. Cheers, man. Thank you. 27 minutes after 10, you're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811. You can text us here on double eight double three if you want to have your say on the English Premier League. Is Manchester United Liverpool the biggest single sporting event on an annual basis? Tour de France is over a three-week period. They talk about Super Bowl, but Super Bowl doesn't have the viewing audience that football has. El Clasico between Barcelona and Madrid is big. But is it as big as Liverpool United? Text us here on double eight double three. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one is the number. Jump on the phones, have your say, talk sport. If you have just joined us, uh, a couple of talking points earlier. I try not to go too much into the rugby stuff. Um, I just want to be a little bit broader. But just having watched the 
MPC over the weekend and watching Auckland get beaten by Bay of Plenty. You do have to question the depth and strength of club rugby in Auckland. Wellington were beaten by Northland. How strong is the club scene there? Canterbury beaten by Taranaki. New Zealand rugby's in trouble. I think a lot of us realise that. A lot of discussion around the all-black coaches, the all-black captain. But I think the alarm bells in the long term should be screaming and ringing around the state of senior club rugby. Surely... You've got to place emphasis on that now. That's where resource needs to be put. You can't just have school kids getting picked and being put straight into Mitre 10 Cup or coming through a really weak senior club rugby competition and their reputation was still established at school. Absolute must, absolute necessity. And then the MPC should become the blue ribbon event of New Zealand rugby. 14 wonderful teams, 14 unions with such rich history, all produced remarkable All Blacks, have all had a golden era at some point. Get the model right. Bring in private commercial backers or owners. At least of the shop window team with a level of investment also required to be put into the grassroots below that. Make this the English Premier League. Get some of the best players in the world playing here. Get Southland strong. Get Manawatu strong. Fill up the stadiums in Otago, in Dunedin. Bring back the tribalism. Promote the history. re-establish the old traditional jerseys. And then have your club teams affiliated with the unions as almost double-A, triple-A. Stop broadcasting schoolboy rugby and start broadcasting club rugby. If you want to have your say, jump on the phone. Anything else you wish to discuss as well? I said this earlier, I haven't had an opportunity to talk about the reappointment of Ian Foster. I know it's old news, it's probably done to death, it's probably boring. But reappointing Ian Foster, is that New Zealand rugby saying it's okay now to experiment, it's okay now to lose? But it's all okay if we win the Rugby World Cup. That's the feeling I get. And that is the end of New Zealand rugby, if it is the case. Because I've just said, club rugby's dead. Might attend Cup or MPC is, well, who's watching it? Who cares about North Harbour, Hawke's Bay, Ramfley Shield this week? Are they going to shut down Takapuna if North Harbour wins it? Probably not. Street Parade? Probably not. Super rugby? Well, a shadow of a great competition that it once was. And then we're going to say it's okay for the All Blacks to lose in between Rugby World Cups as long as we win the Rugby World Cup. Reduces the game to not a lot.
So if you'd like to have a say on those matters, the lines are open. You can text us here on double eight double three. You can phone the program on 0800 150 <coughs> Excuse me. Also had replayed an interview that I did uh, last week with Arch Jelly. Arch is the running coach of the great Sir John Walker. Uh, 20 years, orchestrated all of his wonderful performances from breaking the mile world record in 1975, becoming the first athlete under three minutes 50, to gold medal in 1976. I continue to say it's the greatest gold medal I think we've ever won based on the circumstances of those games and the pressure on Sir John. But it's a nice little segue too just to bring up and talk about some of the other great coaches that perhaps don't get the recognition here. We also had Craig Kirkwood on the programme earlier tonight. Now, Craig is the coach of Sam Tanner, the young 1,500-metre runner who just ran faster than Sir John and Sir Peter Snell at the recent Commonwealth Games, a time of 3 minutes 31.34, and also the coach of Hayden Wild. You can find that interview on Twitter as well. How many people know who Craig Kirkwood is? Why aren't they given the same recognition and same honours that our rugby coaches are. Remembering rugby is still on an international stage a minor sport. Those coaches are incredibly well resourced and you expect them to win. 21 minutes away from 11. You would swear that is Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin. If you didn't know and you had to guess, you would have said that's a live version of Plant. Brilliant. Great musicianship. And just for our listeners, enlighten us. He's actually a Scottish musician, Paolo Nutini. Yeah, boy, what a range he's got too. I encourage you when you drive home, Mark, to listen to his new album. Yeah, the problem is I've got an issue with my stereo in the car at the moment. For some reason, it's gone off. I can't play Bluetooth through it. I don't want to listen to good music just through my iPhone without stereo sound. So I won't be doing that, but I'd like to. Maybe on your next run. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm always looking for something different. Discovering new tracks out at Mirawai all the time, running every day at the moment. And great place to just visualise, great place to listen to tunes. Got to get some of those, um, what are they, <coughs> wireless earphones. <laughs> are they called like, earpods? Well, yeah, they, are, they <laughs> are earpods, some of them are, yeah. Sorry, I've just got a little bit of a cough going in, as you may have heard. Um... What was I going to say that was highly intelligent, Ben? It can't have been that much, to be perfectly honest. Clearly. Hey, um, did you watch the Anthony Joshua fight yesterday? I did not watch it. Uh, that's because I was attending to other work issues, or matters, I should say. Uh, so I did not, ca- did not catch it, but uh, in terms of the result, not surprised. Mm. We've got a bit of audio from him, haven't we? Yeah, so, of course, Anthony Joshua was quite upset after losing again. I think it's his third career loss, and he, you know, of course, fronted the media after losing to Alexander Yusik. It's really, really hard for me to say I'm proud of myself. Um, I don't feel anything. I'm just, well, I'm upset, really, like, deep down in my heart. Oh, man. Oh. What? I just feel like when when you try and do things from your heart, 
Uh, not everyone's always going to understand. And it was just from the heart, right? I knew I was, I was mad, like, at myself. Not anyone, just at myself. So I thought, I've got to get out of here because I'm mad, like. <laughs> and like anyone, when you're angry, you might do stupid things. So I was mad. But then I realized, this is sport. <laughs> Let me do the right thing <laughs> and come back. And then I just spoke from my heart, like, it's been so, it's been so tough. Like, you see AJ holding it together, yeah? And I'm a hustler, so I try and put things together. Like, I try to work hard, put things together, make sure my team's good. But um, it comes at a cost, like, a big cost. And, like, sometimes it'll, ne it'll never break me, but it, it takes real strength for it not to break you. And tonight, like, there's a little crack in that, in the armor because I took a loss. And I think you just saw me just upset. And um, with the speech, I was just speaking about where I'd come from. Like, like I was on the roads, like, really. And I made a transition in boxing and it really helped me change my life. You know, bring me closer to God, bring me closer to meeting so many amazing people. And um, I just kind of laid it all on the line with my speech. But listen, let's not forget about the champ Alexander Usyk, who put on a phenomenal performance as well. So credit to him. I can't remember what I said in the ring because it was just so passionate, but I just want to say thank you to him for taking part in a great historical fight as well. It takes two to tango and um, yeah, just, I was just so upset. Yeah, let's uh, see if we have another Alexander Usyk, uh, Anthony Joshua fight. I think people would be more than happy to see a third fight, uh, a trilogy. I don't blame um, Joshua for coming out afterwards when you're straight after a fight or straight in the heat of things. You're, you're irrational, aren't you? We saw uh, Super Rugby this year. It was um, all-black halfback, wasn't it? Aaron Smith that wasn't happy with the referee. A game against the Hurricanes, I think, and copped a lot of criticism for having to go at the referees. But I'm like, if you're going to go and throw a camera or a microphone in somebody's face, just after they've lost and they feel it's contentious, they're probably going to give you a soundbite that's going to be a little bit negative. And I actually like sportsmen and sports people who do show that emotion, who do care enough, who might have felt they were ripped off or felt they were hard done by. And then you take some time away and you regather your thoughts and you might be a little bit embarrassed by your behaviour and you come out and you sort of address it. He's not the first and he won't be the last. I'd still like to see Joshua go up against the Gypsy King. Yes, it go up against the Gypsy King. And I'd still like to see Parker, under his new coaches, step up and get an opportunity against those three boxers as well. It's great that the heavyweight boxing's finally got some depth, finally in a really strong position. Because I think there was a decade there it wavered a little bit. Certainly, oh, even in the 1990s to a degree, at the end of the Tyson era. Early 2000s. 
It is coming up to 10 minutes away from 11. Okay, it is six minutes away from 11 o'clock. Uh, ben hosting tomorrow night, uh, 7 through to 11. Really looking forward to 9 till 11 because of big focus on darts. The best darts players in the world have arrived on New Zealand shores. The Darts Masters gets underway in Hamilton on Friday. There will be plenty of... Um, well, I was going to say plenty of entertainment. That goes without it. Dressing up in costumes, the banter, everything that makes darts so unique. Ben, uh, if you go on Friday, are you going in costume? I'll be going in a work capacity. Oh, okay. I'm very professional in the darts. scene. Are we going to have some commentary? Uh, no, it'll just be on Sky TV. Or yeah. I guess my social medias will have updates and interviews, etc. Oh, that'll be good though, mate. Yeah, so who are you going to have in studio tomorrow night, do you know? Yeah, so tomorrow night we have got uh, Michael Van Gerwen, Gerwen Price, Johnny Clayton, Joe Cullen, James Wade, Michael Smith. How are you going to get them all in here, mate? Oh, take turns. I got, I got New Zealand's number one big rig, Ben Robbins, studio Brilliant. as well. Brilliant. Hopefully he'll be rocking his new uh, new look uh, shirt he's got for the Darts Masters. Fantastic. What's his nickname? Big Rig. Big Rig. Love yeah. it. Is I'm he a big just, unit? I'm, I'm just a bit taller than him, though. Is he a big unit? Well, he's around my height, but more of a solid build. Oh, okay, fair to say. Be a good hooker. Prop. Halfback. No? I'm not sure. Okay. Anyway. I think he's more a leaguey. Looking forward to that. That is tomorrow night um, between 7 and 11 here on SENZ. It's been a privilege and a pleasure having your company. If you are driving around the country, do take care. Special thanks to Bren Francis. Look forward to talking sport with you at some point in the future.